All right, Bizzlecasters, I am back with my buddy Matt Goisman. This is his third Bizzlecast appearance, and very important appearance it is because we are going to do the film audio commentary for the 2013 DC superhero movie Man of Steel, which at the time seemed like maybe a standalone movie, but now we know much better as DC tries to launch its own extended cinematic universe. But before uh, we do a quick intro and count you guys down into the movie, uh, Matt, you're a co-contributor, third appearance, thoughts? I, I'm honored. <laughs> I, I, when, I, when, the, when my memoirs are written at the end of my life, I will be sure to include this. Uh, I will be emphatic with the, the writer or whatever people are doing to create memoirs in those days uh, uh, yeah. that, my, that this is included in my list of accomplishments. Well, seriously, though, it was a blast doing the first two. So I'm just ecstatic to be back for a third. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and just to recap, Matt's first appearance uh, is still by far the longest Bizzlecast ever. We talked about nerd stuff for, I mean, the final recording is three hours and 15 minutes. So we must have been on for, what, four hours? At least. I, it was, uh, I had a, many things I had planned to do that day I did not wind up doing. <laughs> and then we were just both so tired afterwards. You can't do them anyways, you know. Uh, but, but it was great. Uh, I, I've been re-listening to it over the last uh, few days and pieces just to, just to uh, refresh my memory. And then Matt was on doing a um, Star Wars retrospective with our buddy Gabriel, which was a lot of fun. That was about two and a half hours of geeking out on, on Force Awakens. But anyways, Matt is here today to do a joint commentary with me for Man of Steel from 2013, directed by <laughs> Zack Snyder. Um, not exactly Matt's favorite person, but we will get there, uh, starring Henry Cavill um, as Superman and uh, Amy Adams as Lois Lane, and actually a real all-star cast. Uh, mm-hmm. I'll mention really quickly, and then we'll jump in. I hadn't seen this movie fully before. I had seen it sort of in parts on television and stuff. Uh, I didn't realize how, how you know. I mean, th- this gives even the Avengers movies a month for. Uh, this gives even the Avengers movies a run for its money in the sense of how many big names they have. Um, just on paper, uh, which doesn't always translate, and we will get there. Um, but. We have Batman v Superman coming up. We are recording this as of late January. I'm probably going to release this early to mid-March, maybe a little earlier if I get antsy, as a lead-up to Batman v Superman. And uh, so we thought, why not? Let's do Man of Steel, which uh, Matt did not love. Um, I have mixed feelings about. I actually enjoyed it a little bit more than I thought, only because Matt had set my expectations so low. Um, <laughs> so actually, thank you for that. You know, I'm happy to help. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, a- a- any uh, anything you want to say to the Bizzlecast listeners, or we just just jump in? Uh, I mean, if we're going to avoid the larger themes of this movie till later, mm-hmm. then I-, I don't have anything more to say about it. You know, uh, uh, other than to when you watch this movie, you want to treat it as, you know, look at for its merits as a film and also try to see it as the opening move in the creation of the DCEU. Right. And the big question is whether or not it achieves one more than the other, whether it wants to achieve one more than the other. But you have to watch the movie to kind of get those uh, impressions. So uh, without further ado, we're going to get to to the countdown. But first... In the future, the singularity will determine the fate of mankind. Will it help save the world or destroy it? Machines will take human form. Humans will be modded by machines. Books, 
movies, television, art, philosophy, religion, and history. These are the tools to understand the choices we have yet to make and the consequences of those already made. The war to save mankind begins now with the Bizzlecast. All right, people, now is the time to queue up your digital file or DVD or Blu-ray to 000. I'm going to count it down, three, two, one, and when I say go, you should immediately hit play. As usual, get those subtitles on, but definitely ambient sound. And here comes the countdown. All right, here we go. Three, two, one, go. We good? Yeah, it's just showing the Warner Brothers thing now. All right, Bizzlecasters, welcome to the audio commentary for Man of Steel, the Superman movie um, from Warner Brothers and DC from 2013, directed by Zack Snyder and starring Henry Cavill um, as uh, Superman slash Clark Kent. Um, and really a cast of thousands, a lot of celebrities in this movie. Um, we'll discuss the difference between celebrities and stars maybe in terms of their impact on the movie. Um, I, this is one of the better... I mean, there's so many production companies involved in the beginning. I always enjoy this. Uh, they really make it work with the color scheme right away. It flows nicely into the, the early scene, which is basically a giant CGI space battle never to be seen again. Um, but here we go. This is the holy birth... The messianic birth of Superman. Uh, go ahead, Matt. Yeah, so as Jesse mentioned, messianic. One of the biggest themes in this film is Superman as a godlike being versus Superman as sort of an immigrant, regular person. If you want to extend that out, that's basically what Superman has been depicted as for the last 20 years versus what Superman was depicted at in the uh, early, you know, when he was created in the late 30s. Um, and the kind of the worlds that he's a product of in both of them. But yes, this scene, one, I'm not sure why they start decided to start it with some very, not graphic, but certainly uh, uh, intimate birthing scene, but okay. Um, but yes, I do think this is supposed to vaguely recall the nativity. And he's going to start calling this kid a god in about five minutes. So it's, I think it's very directly tied into that theme. I think we can agree that we want a yell at Zur in as many comic book properties as possible. Yes, but she uh, sucks <laughs> in this. I, I'm sorry. She does, but it's not her fault. No, the, the script is terrible. Yeah. And yeah. she just has this zonked out look like she's taking some kind of painkiller or something. She just has this monotone stare uh, and voice that really just doesn't have any Fair um, enough. value. Go watch Daredevil. Go watch her in that. She's so much better in that. She's great with Wilson Fisk. All right, can you explain what's going on here? Okay, so we've got Jor-El, Russell Crowe. Uh, maybe my actually favorite character in this movie, um, and I don't always love Russell Crowe, but I think he does a good job with this role. Um, he is debating with the elders of Krypton. The planet's going to be destroyed. This is the classic story. Jor-El warns the Kryptonians. They don't listen to him. And the planet is destroyed, but, you know, as we'll see in a few minutes, not before he at least manages to save his son. 
why Krypton gets destroyed changes from story to story. Sometimes something's wrong with the core. Sometimes there's some kind of blight in the Earth. Sometimes there's a civil war like way in the past involving clones, believe it or not, Uh-oh. that screws everything up. Sometimes the Sun Rao is just going to go Nova. And now we meet Michael Shannon as General Zod. <laughs> yes, not a great performance. Uh, one of many characters in this film who basically has one facial expression the entire movie, and it doesn't really work in his favor. Zod is always a revolutionary, a violent, militant rebel, um, usually pretty vicious. He tries to overthrow the Kryptonians. He and Jor-El are usually friends. And so now you have the epic confrontation. Will you join? Will you not? There's some stuff about the Codex, which is really a a go-nowhere plot device. Um, But this is sort of the classic uh, confrontation between the two. And it sets up the conflict Zod will eventually have with Jor-El's son, Kal-El, or Superman. I agree about Russell Crowe. Um, You know, I almost wonder if they, you know, uh, thought of doing the whole flashbacks um, device in this movie, partially just to keep Russell Crowe active throughout it. I I kind of sensed that Russell Crowe wouldn't have taken this part if he was only going to be in the first 10 minutes like uh, Chris Hemsworth in the Star Trek reboot, you know? Right. Um, So I sort of could sense that he was going to be back or we'd see him in Vision. So that wasn't surprising, but I I love him. I I mean, he's been in some so-so movies, but as a pure actor, it's hard to argue that he's incredibly talented. And even though he's one of those always playing different versions of himself, there's a wide range of those versions, and he's great. Okay, so Matt and I don't see completely eye to eye on this seed. I think this special effects is spectacular. Now, I'm watching it on my computer at the moment, so, you know, it's hard to appreciate, but I did watch it on my uh, semi-big screen. It's like 42 inches, and I really had a blast watching this stuff. I love great space battles and or, or just cosmic stuff. To me, this is way more compelling than any of the Thor stuff, which just looks not nearly as three-dimensional or realistic. Maybe it's the color palette, as you point out. But look at the dynamic camera movements, and we'll see this throughout the movie. And I actually liked Snyder's camera work in some, if not all, of the movie. I think this scene works better than a lot of them. One of the problems I sometimes have with Snyder is that he doesn't let scenes breathe. Everything is slightly telegraphed. It's like everybody's moving at like 95% of normal speed, and it takes the dramatic tension away from scenes. You see it most clearly in Watchmen, where there are almost never scenes that seem to be going at full speed. Uh, in the three, in 300, you see a lot of actual slow-mo fighting, uh, but everything is just sort of telegraphed a little bit. When he just lets a scene happen, they're pretty good. And one thing I like about that scene is it seems to be going at pretty much full speed. Sure. This scene now is where we're going to start getting into my opinion that he takes a lot of imagery from just other franchises. This is very Matrix to me, with a robot grabbing a fetus in a bubble, and then he's popping out into this watery chamber that could... And the red, the redness of the bubble is like the exact color and transparency as the Matrix goo. Right. But other than the skull with the codex on it, this could be Neo's, you know, pod chamber that he wakes up in right before he gets flushed out and and picked up by the Nebuchadnezzar. Um, Now, with the codex which we'll find out what it is later. I'll simply say for now that, because I don't want to spoil it, I guess, that it's a, a database 
why you would encode a database on a skull is really dumb. Uh, <laughs> it, it's just not a very useful way to store information, other yeah. than it looks kind of cool, I guess. Sure. Um, but skulls are kind of a recurring image in this film. And in a film that's supposed to be about the most super uh, hopeful superhero ever, why there's all these skulls, I don't know. This is another moment, though, in this scene that, that reminds me just too much of Avatar, where you know you have scenes of people falling long distances, you have gunships versus guys riding dragon-like creatures. You know, you swap out Avatar's bright green Boom. neon. There's the zoom shot. I mean, right. this is almost like Serenity right here, the zoom on the capital ships crashing together. Look at right. look at the you know, I mean Battlestar does this, but they got it from Joss Whedon and Firefly, which is sure. having the dynamic camera in space so that you feel like you're on one of these flying creatures or right. or whatever. Almost makes you know, gives it a documentary feel as ridiculous as it sounds, shaking the camera all over the place, doing the the quick uh, zoom and so forth. Sure, or when the bomber gets blown up and crashes at the end of Avatar. Um, but those super tall spires are like home tree. You can like it or not. I think it's a well done scene. I think it's a better done fight scene than a lot of the other ones in this movie. Uh, oh yeah, this is the best by far. I actually like when they escape when Jor-El helps uh, Lois escape from uh, Zod's ship. That's my favorite scene in the film. We'll get to that, and I'll talk about why I like it so much. So this is cool. Uh, so that's th- this is. Uh... A little reminiscent of what they do in the original X Men, mm-hmm. uh, where they have a holographic table and they have this sort of gray black m- matter that can morph into any shapes as they're planning out their strategic right. uh, p- plan, uh, which which was brilliant at the time. They didn't have the technology to do the you know uh, uh, Tony Stark million holographic scene stuff. It's very effective. I don't know. I I, I just find that the the dialogue is so melodramatic. It yeah. Just, n- none of this makes sense, but from a purely visual standpoint, I, I really like this scene. I love watching it, and I know that oh, I, you know we we differ a little bit in that you know I'll give I'll give film points on some superficial things. Uh, whereas if you just don't like the film, it, it's it's all kind of tainted, right? I mean, right. Uh, quick Easter egg there. That yeah. robot's name is Kellex or Kelex. In uh-huh. the comics, Kellex or Kelex. I it's comics. You don't know how anything's pronounced. Uh, is a robot in Superman's Fortress of Solitude. He's like a robotic helper drone. Um, he was got a lot of uh, pages in the Superman comics of the late 90s when they rebooted everything about five years ago. I, I think they may have just gotten rid of him, but that's a nice little Easter egg there. Um, I'm with you. Visually, this scene works, but the dialogue really doesn't, and these both of these actors look just so bored they look like they don't know what to do with lines these dumb so ayala zur is just sort of staring off into space and that's the only facial expression she makes keep in mind they're a about all to die with their planet and b they just had a baby and are sending it away i i don't know i didn't see her performance as oscar worthy but i didn't see it as as wooden or horrible either she's working with the material she has as is russell crowe oh there's that yep yeah, there's that uh that uh, <laughs> morphing stuff again, where it's, right. not pu- it's not a pure morph, but it's particle-based. Uh, I'm wondering if the particle-based stuff and the fact that it's muted colors, I mean, how does this compare to Asgard, for example, and Thor, in terms of the combination of fantasy, myth, and science fiction? Well, I think um, you need to... Uh, sorry. I think... It, you can compare it with Thor, but I think the much more important visual to compare it with is 
how Kryptonian technology is depicted in the other movies. Classically, Kryptonian technology is based on crystals. These, you know, hard light, you know, bright blue usually or very pale blue spiky objects. You go from that to this particle-based Uh-oh. Kind apocalypse of thing. Now shot. Yeah, Apocalypse Now with gunships that look straight out of Avatar. So, I don't mind that um I don't mind that they everything is this weird shifty particle-based material in this version of Krypton. That's a different visual take than the crystalline uh, Krypton that you see in the the Richard Donner movies, which directly influenced Superman Lives, you know, the Brandon Ruth movie from uh, whenever that was, uh, like 2008, something like that. So I can't believe we haven't mentioned this yet. We're almost 12 minutes into the movie, plus the intro. That Matt is not only a huge DC guy from childhood, right? Um, oh, yeah. I started reading comics when I didn't have any friends in fifth grade, you know, like most uh, <laughs> yeah. people who start reading comics, I think, do. Yeah, uh, but I think Superman's your favorite, or at least we've talked the most about it. And so Matt is going to make connections um, about similarities and the many differences between uh, Superman, not only as portrayed here, but in recent years versus sort of classic Superman, which is what he prefers. Um, so Matt, feel free, uh, obviously, at any point in the movie to, to bring in some comic book knowledge. I did do the Dark Knight podcast. That was my first DC podcast. This is my second. We only talked about the movie for the most part in Dark Knight, so I'd love to get the comic book stuff going. So uh, the floor is yours, my friend. Sure. Uh, I don't know if Superman is my favorite comic character, but I certainly think he is the most important superhero ever created. He is still most the, the most widely recognized. That S icon is, uh, you know, the the most iconic comic symbol there is. Um, and every comic character created since is in conversation with how Superman is as a character, either a co- contrast, similarities, you know, and there's a reason Superman hasn't really changed in the comics except every, you know, as gimmicks every once in a while for 80 years because he works. This scene now that we're looking at with Zod fighting Jor-El is an okay fight scene, and I kind of do like that Jor-El fucks Zod up a little bit. But when we see Jor-El later helping, or the hologram Jor-El helping Amy Adams escape, that's how I would think a scientist would fight. This weird hand-to-hand fight between a scientist and a soldier, there's no reason why Jor-El should be able to win that fight. And there's no reason why he would know advanced fighting tactics. You know, if they talk in this film about how everybody is bred for a purpose, if he is bred to be a scientist, when did he learn advanced martial arts okay it's a scene that doesn't work i think so do we have a caste system in this society is that what's going on uh yeah ba- so, yes effectively um now not every version Ugh. of uh, oh he stabs Jorel. it's real sad there's this look of i don't know what because they only make this expression in the entire film so they all could be feeling 50 different emotions and they'd express it the same way this is another scene, though, that I think is a little bit too telegraphed, you know, and it lingers a little too long. It's a problem with the style. Sure. Um, and well, that'll be a recurring issue. We'll try not to linger on that too long, with the, uh, too much in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyways, you were saying about sort of the cast system, or is it more like, um, uh, you know, like in The Giver, you know, like when you reach age 12, everyone gets their professions for life, that kind sure. of thing? Uh, in this film, it's explicitly said that people are babies are born 
you know, they are, I don't know, artificially inseminated and created for a specific task. They are bred to be soldiers and then they just grow up being soldiers their whole life. They are bred to be scientists and then they just grow up being scientists. And so Superman represents a revolution because he's conceived naturally. I'm not totally sure that that's ever been in the comics before. Krypton is usually depicted as fairly cold. That physical contact and intimacy is rare. God, that's so Battlestar. I'm sorry to interrupt you. The double zoom there on the yep. moving spaceship. I could, and so then we see the Battlestar guys later. Spoiler alert. Uh, we'll talk about that. Keep going. So, uh, you know, this take on, on Krypton is visually different. And I think it may have a couple of slightly skewed takes on Kryptonian society. I think it's generally in keeping with how Krypton has always been depicted. Um, you know, and this scene is supposed to very much be, uh, I think it's supposed to recall the scene in Superman one where Zod and his followers are tried from their crimes and yep. sent into the phantom zone. Visually, okay. it's very different. Can I, um, can I ask you a general comics question? Yeah. More broadly about the science fiction influences. Mm-hmm. Now we know that, um, the cr- many of the creators of both DC and Marvel, uh, were either Jewish or other sorts of right immigrants or, or or kids of immigrants, right? Right. And so we'll get back to the <laughs> the Superman connection to immigration um, in a little bit when we start seeing his origin story. Mm-hmm. Um, here's uh, Zod acting worse than anyone else. Um, but uh, do you mean just... worse is in its bad acting, or he's <laughs> yes. acting more vis- viciously? No, no, his his acting is not good. Uh, it's just not the right role for this guy. He's clearly not a bad actor. It's just not the right role or good writing. Anyways. Also, point, I want to point out, he just yeah. said, I will find him, I think, five times in two minutes. Right. I'm pretty sure the point could have been made with two. And these are very strangely shaped pods. These are like... Just a tease. Uh, when I was watching this movie, I had an idea of a much cooler bad guy who would be female and have much different designs for Superman. I'll get back to that later. Um, but anyways... The science fiction, right. whether it's Superman, which started in... 38, this, I think. Okay, Superman started in 38. In this form, they actually wrote a short story about a, a telepathic alien with a huge head called Superman. Right. About three years before that, he wasn't a good person. I don't know... I think they just they decided this isn't a good story, and so when they cre- they recreated Superman as as Clark Kent, right? The, this was the pitch was the you know what we think of as the first Superman. So, anyway, so Superman thirty eight, uh, Fantastic Four was I don't know the forties or fifties. Mm-hmm. I can't remember. It was it was I think Fantastic Four was the earliest property in Marvel, or at least the earliest team property. No way, Captain America was way earlier. Back when Marvel was timely comics. It was the earliest team property. Um, I don't know when X-Men came out, so that that uh, might be later. Much later. Avengers and X-Men. The Avengers characters came out early, but the Avengers as the Avengers, as well as the all of the X-Men was later. Fantastic right. Four goes back, I think, to like the late 40s, early 50s. Anyways, point being, you have these ridiculous cosmic science fiction visions, right. and yet the father of modern science fiction, Isaac Asimov, didn't start writing until the 40s and 50s, really. So where are these comic book creators, and maybe it was a much different vision, where are these comic creators getting the science fiction um, you know, uh, influence from? Where were they drawing from so early on? Pulp magazines. Mm. Pulp magazines uh, really were at their apex in the 1910s, 1920s, early 1930s. A lot of the great 
writers who would go on to comics uh, got their start in pulp magazines. A really classic example is Julius Schwartz, who would spearhead what was called the Silver Age of DC Comics. Not the 30s and 40s, but the rebirth of DC in the 50s and 60s, where you had Green Lantern as an interdimensional, you know, as an intergalactic space cop, where you had the Flash as the product of a scientific experiment where he gets doused by electrified chemicals from lightning. The science fiction element starts to much more directly bleed into comics uh, in the Silver Age. Julius Schwartz got his start in pulp magazines. The 1930s, Superman is a, as a detective. He solves crimes using his superpowers, you know. I found these jewels by looking through this wall with my eyes, you know. Um, so the science fiction element uh, definitely gets its start from uh, pulp magazines in the 1910s, 1920s, 1930s. H.P. Lovecraft, who, you know, started horror but also did a lot of sci-fi writing. That was how he got published, um, you know, magazines like Weird Tales and things of that nature. So, um when they sent Superman to Earth, and you can speak comic, movie, or both, right? Um, did they know that it was inhabited and like semi advanced, or they just it was just like this was the only planet we got? Oh no, they knew. Uh, when Jor-El and Lara are talking in this film, she says they'll try to kill him, and he said how he will be like a god to them. Note the word "god" goes back mm-hmm. to the nativity-like birth scene to start the film. And the general theme that the Kryptonians see Superman, or at least Jor-El sees Superman as a god sent to Earth for whatever purpose. Um, That is a recurring theme in this. That is a a huge theme in Smallville, where the the pilot episode, Clark is tied to a scarecrow that is basically a cross-shaped piece of wood and left there to suffer with kryptonite hanging around his neck. And in the final season, there's an episode where he's attacked by people who worship blue kryptonite and Mm. Lois saves him and tells them he's a messenger of God who will punish them. Um, And you see it in Superman returns where at the end Superman falls to earth after throwing the kryptonite Island into the sun with his arms outstretched in a crucified like pose. Um, This is the modern reimagining of Superman as a very Christ-like messianic figure. Right, which, you know, as we've talked about, wasn't the original uh, intent of the creators of Superman. No, uh, it was a marketing decision to try to make Superman appeal to an evangelical Christian audience in America that thrives on characters like that and on reimaginings like that. It's why the Christian film industry exists. So, can we we nerd on comparative powers for a second here while we watch him... Uh, okay, first of also, all... Also, 20 minutes in, first shot yeah. of Henry Cavill with his shirt yeah. off. Oh, yeah, baby. He's a good-looking guy. Actually, for a split second, when when they first show him bearded in the ship, like, like five minutes ago, and I right. didn't know that was him, I was like, Oscar Isaac? I was like, oh, no, that's not Oscar <laughs> Isaac. With the beard, it looks so similar, I guess. Nice holo- um, helicopter CGI. Yeah. For the most part, the CGI looks good in this movie. The most obvious CGI, as usual, is when they try and do CGI people. Um, you know, CGI Henry Cavill or whatever. Right. It, it, it's mostly flawless. And like I'm always saying, you know, I don't know why more people like Joss and uh, JJ don't do this. Just m- if you move the camera around, you're going to oh, add... American flag. Sorry, keep going. Yeah, no, no, it's okay. If you move the camera around, you're going to increase the appeal of the CGI by like 50%, you know? Right, because um, people can't focus on it enough to see the flaws. 
Yeah, and that's why people who complain about Ultron being so CGI say, well, there's just so much movement and action. It's like, yeah, I know when it's CGI cat, but it's so quick and so well shot. Uh-oh, this is creepy teacher lady like from Serenity. Right. Oh, I, I had no idea what was going on at this point in the movie. I, I got it. Um, this kid, I, it's so hard to find kid actors that are any yes. good. This kid sucks. Um, he's really not at all interesting. He's not great, but I've gone on at length about the worst uh, kid actors uh, in in film. I don't think this is up there with uh, either um, Anakin Skywalker or young uh, John Connor. But, I mean, he's not amazing. Anyways. Oh, but John Connor is supposed to be whiny. He's meant to be that much of a brat. That's the point, is he... It's supposed to be the messiah of the future, and he's just this asshole kid. Yeah, but then you see Thomas Decker as 16-year-old John Connor in the Sarah Connor Chronicles doing a way more subtle version of that. Okay, I never saw that, and I also... Nobody had any way to predict that when they made T2. I think they all thought the franchise was done at T2. Yeah. I'd be happy to send you the Blu-rays for Sarah Connor Chronicles. It's only like 30 total episodes over a season and a half. It's abs- it's better than any of the movies by far. Anyways, um, back to the comparative powers. Yeah. By the way, by the way, <laughs> he has four parents, okay? Mm-hmm. And, you know, Ayelet isn't a you know, giant. I mean, she's a giant Israeli star. She's not a giant star. But you got Russell Crowe, and right. then you got Diane Lane, and then you got Kevin Costner. Yep. Um, of all of them, I think Diane Lane is my favorite just because she has the most to do. Right. I agree with you that having Russell Crowe pop in and out is fun, but she really has to shoulder the emotional load with yeah. Amy Adams of this entire movie. Wouldn't you agree? I do. Um, now, this scene I want to point out is very similar to how Smallville deals with Clark discovering his super hearing. Obviously, Clark is in high school when that show <laughs> takes place, but there's Sorry. a similar scene where... Um, they're in a barn and he can't control his hearing and working with, uh, um, Jonathan Kent, Jonathan Kent is like, just listen to me, just listen to me, focus on my voice. And that's how he hones in his super hearing powers. Um, now we have more of these, these kind of scenes annoy me visually because they're supposed to be symbolic. You know, we have an American flag or rain dripping in a bucket or clouds on a laundry but look at the way look at the way he's moving the camera around. I mean, you right. either like it or you don't. But I give Snyder credit. No other superhero movie is doing this. I mean, the Marvel movies, even the ones that are shot, you know, relatively well, like the Avengers or Cap, it's right. very little shaky cam. And I'm glad. I'm glad that there's not tons of shaky cam in all the movies. But it's it, it's a nice change of pace. Um, to be honest with you, I mean, they really have very few static shots in this movie, and the framing of the shots is great. Um, the scenes are too long. I think if they had just cut the movie by like 30 or 40 minutes, oh my we might God. be talking about uh, something way different. Oh, totally. Um, but I would say the middle act, I enjoyed the sci-fi for the visuals, but the middle act of the origin story with the flashbacks, I, 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 I admit, I, I, I kind of enjoyed it. It was different. It was a change of pace. Um, so uh, anyways, quickly though, I keep trying to get here, comparative powers. Right. So part of the reason I didn't love Superman uh, when I uh, was growing up was he just seemed too powerful. Like, right. how could anyone beat him? I didn't realize the subtleties of the aliens thing. and I just didn't know. I was just a Marvel guy, right? Right. And I didn't like Batman because he wasn't powerful enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I love Marvel. I talk about, you know, 
and this is also true of um, Thor and Hulk. This is why I wasn't into Thor and Hulk. They seemed way too powerful. They were gods, you know. Right. I, I talk about how in the X Men, you know, you've if if you have say powers one to ten, where one is human and ten is like Superman slash Thor slash Hulk. Right. Um, or nine ten. The X Men have a lot of like level five, six, seven, eight superpower. Um, characters, and that was way more interesting to me because they were powerful, but they all had vulnerabilities. The Hulk literally, with Thor, and we're going to see this in Ragnarok. I've mentioned this before that news came out, by the way, Mm -hmm. multiple times. I said, if you put Thor and Hulk together, they could literally take down entire planets, and I think we're going to see that in Ragnarok. But back to Superman, you know, uh, there's a lot more subtlety to the character than I realized growing up. He just seemed like a guy with a goofy costume who you'd never believe his, you know, alternate identity that's something else i want to get back to the whole clark kent thing and how um, they ignore it in this movie well they, uh, they well no they're setting it up though i yeah. mean we see in the trailer the the scene that you hate with jesse eisenberg is clark kent right uh sort of interviewing uh bruce wayne and kind of digging into him in a way that makes you think he knows who bruce wayne is right um so uh so that that, that officially just launched the batman v superman discussion which i want to hit at least a few times in this movie i just dropped a lot of stuff feel free to jump in on anything sure i i first off just want to say in the smallville pilot clark saves I'm sorry, uh, buddy. Can you can you uh, explain what Smallville is? I oh, know what it sure. is. I never seen it, but for some of our listeners, they might not know what Smallville is. Sure, I'm sorry. Smallville, uh, starring Tom Welling, was the last TV show on the air that had Superman. It was about Clark Kent. It starts, I think, when he's a freshman in high school, uh, discovering who he is. Um, it, I think, it runs nine or ten seasons. It's about a young Clark discovering his powers, grappling with. You know, these same ideas of predestination, of being a godlike being or not. Um, it stars Tom Welling as uh, Clark Kent, Kristen Kroik as uh, Lana Lang, Michael, it's like Rosenblum or Rosenberg. I feel bad. I'm Rosenbaum. Wrong. Rosenbaum, thank you. Uh, as Lex Luthor, um, he does a great job in that role. Um, and it takes place, obviously, in Smallville until the last couple of seasons when finally he does get to Metropolis. Um, he does not don the Superman costume until the last episode. Um, in the later seasons, it tries to create its own larger mythology. They introduce a green arrow. They introduce an impulse, which is like the Flash. There's a cyborg. There's um, a Martian Manhunter. Uh, it didn't really go anywhere beyond that, but it, it at its best, it was a pretty good show. It really I mean, went longer than it had to. Dude, it went freaking too... 2001 to 2011. That's yeah. 11 seasons, okay? And by the end, it wasn't very good. I actually skipped most of the second to last season sure. because of how bad it was. And then I just said, okay, I'll come back to watch the final season. And honestly, nothing that happened in the second half of the season I skipped mattered anyway. So I was able to just pick it right back up. But to be fair, with 217 episodes over 10 or 11 years, okay, on the, I believe, CW yep. network? Yep, CW. Which is doing a lot of DC stuff, or yep. did. Well, maybe we'll get back to that. And I don't recognize a single actor on this entire list. So that's a really amazing accomplishment because I'm an IMDb nerd. I would think I would have seen a couple of these names before. I don't recognize any of them other than like some of the guest stars. Um, why do you think Smallville, uh, before we jump back to the movie here, because uh, we're getting some kid father stuff. Right. Um, why, why do you think Smallville was so successful? 
Um, and, and I mean, Superman with all of his powers and yet a TV show with a, a much lower budget than a movie. Right. Was he flying around at all or it no. was just Clark Kent? Okay. No, he, a couple of times he gets hypnotized by Jor-El by a, and the fortress into sort of abandoning the human side of his personality. And as Kal-El, he can fly. But then when he regains his mentality, the right mind, he loses that ability again. Again, he flies in the last episode. Um, why it worked, I, I, I don't feel qualified to make larger comments about how it came out in 2001 and maybe we needed sort of a, a, a hero. Um, oh. I, I, I don't know about any of that stuff. I, mm. it, you know, it, This isn't like when uh, Spider-Man came out when it very much felt like uh, you know, 9-11 was still on our minds and we needed a, a New York superhero. Um, yep. Uh, Smallville was a well-written show for a while at least the interplay between the actors was good there was no other superhero stuff on TV it wasn't the glut of content we have now Um, the relationship between Clark and Lex which is a friendship for a while and then gets increasingly strained as Lex kind of succumbs to his destiny to be the villain I'm Um, sorry man I'm sorry to cut you off I asked the question but this is where uh, the exposition of Kevin Costner to young Clark Kent, who does look like Henry Cavill right there in this shot, yeah. um, and this thing. Can you explain the logistics of what this thing is and how Kevin Costner knows what he knows? Maybe we'll get back to Smallville later. Uh, in terms of what he knows about, you know, you had a father somewhere else, I think that is actually crappy writing. I mean, yes, con- conceivably he's a person, so Clark had a father at some point. Right. I, I think that's just supposed to be set up, you know, and it sets up the central dynamic between the two fathers. Jarrell, who believes Clark can be this inspirational, angelic, messianic being, and Jonathan, who believes super- Clark should either hide who he is or simply be his own man and make his own destiny, um, or be, you know, the immigrant just trying to go along in this world without making waves, which is a little closer to what he was depicted as in the thirties and forties. Um, and ultimately what I think we'll find with this Superman is he rejects both models. I'm not crazy about the Superman that comes out of that. You know, he's, he's kind of an asshole and he's, he does things for his himself. Um, and that's after these battles are all over and he's kind of in theory formed as a hero. I'm cool with that, though. I mean, again, I keep wanting to make the Thor comparison just because, you know, Superman is so different from Marvel characters. But of the characters that I know, uh oh, you know, and you think he's going to turn around and beat the shit out of this guy. No, instead he ruins the guy's life by destroying his truck, which is a really shitty thing to do. No, I, I totally support it. What a uh, dickhead. Anyway, the guy's an ass, but he could have just knocked him over and been done with it. But to destroy his truck. I, well, this is, and this is. This is the Thor comparison, which is that if you take out the flashbacks in this movie, right, it's not a traditional origin story, which mm-hmm. I like. Um, and Thor has a couple flashbacks too, actually, just in the beginning of young Thor and young Loki. Right. But the whole point of Thor is he is at full power, but he's arrogant and an asshole, and his father has to teach him a lesson um, before he's worthy of the hammer and being the king of Asgard. And even... 
I mean, Thor's still cocky. I mean, even in Ultron, he's much more humbled after the events of Dark World and everything that happened with with Loki and Jane Foster and his and his dad and his mom and so forth. But he's still a little arrogant, still a little cocky. He's worthy of the hammer. And so I kind of look at this movie as Superman becoming worthy in, in a Thor-like way. And there's Hilo, by the way. Tomo yeah. Pennicut. Yep. Love him. Oh, baby. From Battlestar Galactica, for people who don't know who Hilo is. Oh, right. Exactly. The one thing I want to point out with this film that I find interesting is in this version of the Superman story, Jor-El has the much deeper influence on Superman and on the, the mental and on his approach to being a hero. Jonathan Kent in this version really doesn't teach him a whole lot other than maybe a vague point about defining who himself. In most other versions of this story, Jor-El is portrayed as the cold, um, also Richard Schiff there as Emil Hamilton, a mm-hmm. comic character, a recurring comic character, a scientist friend of Superman's. But in the comics, Jor-El is cold. He wants Superman to just be another cold Kryptonian soldier. There's a very famous scene in which a hologram of Jor-El basically tries to brainwash Clark Kent. And uh, Jonathan Kent takes a a rake or some kind of farming implement and destroys the hologram machine and snaps Mm. his son out of it. And so in the comics, it's Jonathan who teaches Superman how to be benevolent, how to be... um, uh, also, quick note, that's Alessandro Giuliani. He was Gaeta in Battlestar Galactica. And in Smallville, he plays Dr. Emil Hamilton, played by Richard Schiff in this movie. So we have two actors playing the same character in that same scene. Um, but in the comics, it's Jonathan who teaches Superman how to be benevolent with his powers, how to be you know, a farmer tending the land and not some cold alien soldier. He, here in this movie, I don't feel like Jonathan teaches him very much and make some very questionable decisions that, that make it hard for me to like him as a character. He tells Clark to let a bus full of kids drown or that, you know, that's at least a conceivable option. Um, whereas in the comics, Jonathan never would have told young Clark to do anything like that. And then as we're going to see in the tornado scene, how Jonathan actually meets his end seems kind of boneheaded to me and it doesn't really sure. work. Sure. Yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there really quickly, though, about Alessandro Giuliani and Tom Openiket from Battlestar. Um, what makes it work in their short appearance is that because this movie is so dark with the filter, they look like they do in Battlestar, which also has a very dark filter, obviously. Right. Um, you know, it's like I couldn't see them as much in, in um, Marvel movies, although I've commented in the past that, you know, Hilo on Battlestar is sort of like Captain America light. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, he is. And, and like I, I kind of could see him in a superhero role. I don't know. Maybe he's. They think his acting is too limited. I thought he. They were supposed to kill off. That's the thing. Hilo was supposed to be dead after the miniseries. They right. left him on Caprica, but there was such a fan response to it that they created an entire subplot in season one to work him back onto the Galactica. And by the end of the series, he's like you know second or third in command of the freaking Battlestar. He is, but he still doesn't get a whole lot of screen time, even with. Uh, oh, crap. Linda Park, is that what that actress's name is? The one Grace, who played... Grace Park. Grace Park. Well, Linda Park is a comics character from The Flash. Uh, Grace Park, even with her, and she gets a ton of screen time, he really doesn't have a whole lot to do other than hang around after he gets back onto Battlestar. I, I like Tom O'Penniket, but I think he's a very one-note actor, or at least the roles he's been given are pretty straightforward. I disagree. 
I disagree. I don't know, man. On, I mean, he doesn't. On Dollhouse, of, he's pretty one note. He's just the same guy as okay, he is Okay, let's in this. not talk about Dollhouse. Let's okay, just stick with Okay, in the Mortal there. Kombat YouTube thing where he's um, Curtis Stryker, a pretty boring character in Mortal Kombat, and he's a pretty boring char- uh, depiction of it. He only seems capable of playing one kind of role. Could he be a superhero? Okay. Sure, but I don't think he could headline a movie. I'm, I'm going to defend Tomo in Battlestar in a second, but here's the here's the USB a flash drive or whatever. Right. Um. So, so okay. So this had been uh, in his parents' like garage or in the basement or something. I and think then, yeah, they put it in the ship with him when they send it to the uh, Earth. And then, but they had they had the USB flash drive, but they hadn't used it before. But they had it. Well, that little you're talking about the S shaped thing with yeah, the key the, code. Yeah, the key code. Well, they didn't know what it was. They didn't know what to do with it, and they didn't know this ship existed until the scene where Superman finds out it existed, which also is a little hard to believe that he just randomly is working in this bar in I don't know where on the day that the soldiers start talking about this mysterious craft. I how he gets to this point is a little hard to believe. And I know looking for logic is dumb in a movie about an alien whose powers comes from absorbing sunlight, but it's still, it's a little hard to figure out how exactly he got to this point. All right. So, you know, we're about uh, 40 minutes in. We've been sidebarring a lot, which is fine. We're talking about Tom O'Pennicott and Smallville. Right. NBD. So from here until at least the final battle scene, let's really try and hone in for better or worse, on the character stuff and the plot stuff going on. It's just because I need it explained. I'm still not sure what's going on half the time. Yeah. Maybe it's not just me. Um, I, I, I just... Uh, hold on one sec. Hold on, hold on one second. I just, uh, I just boosted the sound in my earbuds a little bit so mm-hmm. I can get some more visceral stuff going. If, if you can hear it, it gets distracting. Let me know. Really quickly, I mentioned to you in our first podcast that even though I hadn't seen the film, I thought Amy Adams was born for the Lois Lane role. Right. And indeed she's maybe my favorite character in the movie. That's not like one of the parents or something like that. She's good. Uh, she doesn't act like any reporter I've ever met, but okay. I'm willing to forgive that. To Um, me, it's, to me, it's equivalent to Natalie Portman in Thor. Yeah. You know, and, and and what I love about Natalie Portman in Thor was you think she's just going to be the damsel in distress, but she's really active in making things happen. And that's the same thing with Amy Adams. I was surprised how active they let her be in making things happen. Yes, he has to fly around in the end. It's Lois Lane. you got to do it. You know, And she's, she's hurt here, but um, she's a very proactive character, very brave, very curious. She, you know, can, she picks up on this guy being different right away, just like Natalie did. Right. Um, you know, I think Natalie and Thor is better just because the writing is way better, but not not performance wise. Um, so big ups to Amy Adams here. Yeah, and one thing I want to point out from the comics, uh, Superman actually does have fairly good control of his heat vision. There's a one in the I can't remember what year. I want to say late '90s or early 2000s, where he's facing a telepath who is like this psychotic mass murderer. And to finally beat him, he angles his heat beams through the guy's eye canal and burns out the little part of his brain that gives him his powers. Um, and that's how he beats him. So, I keep, I'm sorry to go back to this. When he's sitting there at the computers, I, you know, I keep expecting him, um, Alessandro Giuliani there, to be like, Contact! Cylon <laughs> Base Star! <laughs> Karim, 3, 2, 1! 
Sorry. <laughs> Speaking of the Cylon base star, look right. at this thing. Yeah, really. Um, or uh, when the Narada from Star Trek kind of comes out of the mist. Um, right. You know, yeah, another visual cue. You know, you have these long kind of tentacled ships in this movie. Kind of looks a little bit like the first Star Trek reboot. I'm right. happy to stick to this film from here on out. What I will say is the first third with sure. all those flashback scenes you don't need them really, so you really don't. You know, we can diverge from that because nothing that happens in those scenes really is all that important. Right. And by now, I think the the Superman origin is beaten to death, and everybody knows why and how he gets his powers. So, unless you were going to do something radically different with how Superman gets his powers, a lot of those scenes of him as a kid don't really matter a whole lot yeah i'm not saying it worked or was necessary i just appreciated the non-traditional middle act structure sure um compared to other origin stories as we've talked about you know like origin stories for me can get extremely tiresome um and maybe if you're trying to cut out 30 minutes from this you would cut out you know five to ten minutes from the opening scene you'd cut out another like 10 minutes or so from this middle part, like maybe the flashbacks. Right. And then you cut out 10 to 20 minutes of the final battle. And, uh, you know, and maybe it flows better. I, I don't know. By the way, Lawrence Fishburne, great with working with nothing. You know, he just says it all on his face. He's such a spectacular actor. I forgot he was in this I mean, <laughs> the first time. No, no, I'm saying I'd never seen it before. So I, I knew that he was in it from his credits. I just forgot. And then when he showed up, I was like, yeah, you know, I, putting him against uh, J.K. Simmons from Spider-Man, that would mm-hmm. be pretty, that'd be a, a funny uh, exchange. And right. certainly those two characters, I mean, that says it all, you know, J.K. Simmons is what Spider-Man's about. And, in his hilarity and weirdness and, and Lawrence Fishburne is, is, is grave and serious and sure. everything that this movie is. Nice yeah. shot of polar bear there. Go yeah. Ahead. I was going to say when the first time I saw that, I was like, did they get lucky? Were they, is that a CGI polar bear? Were they looking for one? I mean, why is there a polar bear? Is that supposed to be symbolic? Because when you have those lingering shots, like the ones of the clothesline and the dripping into the bucket, you have to wonder, is that supposed to mean something? And I, I never do. With the editors, J.K. Simmons was the perfect casting for uh, um, J. Jordan Jameson, and they mm-hmm. wrote the part fantastically. Yep. Uh, Lawrence Fishburne is adequate in an underwritten role as uh, Perry White. He only says four things. Um, one thing I, I noticed that I was, I had this thought is, so when Lois leaks the story to that blogger, the blogger's name is Woodburn, and the immediate first thing I thought was Woodward and Bernstein, who broke oh. the Watergate story. And I was thinking, did Zack Snyder take two of the most famous journalists of all time and merge <laughs> them into one really, really shitty blogger to make some kind of point? Or was that supposed to be uh. a little gag? I don't know, uh. but it, that was the first thing uh. I wondered. Okay, buddy. So this is where the cosmology uh, starts. Right. Or, um, I should. My line of cosmological questions for you starts. Sure, I'll do my best. I don't know where Krypton is in the galaxy. Uh, is it? Is it in the galaxy? I don't I, know. Okay. <laughs> okay. Because we know the Marvel universe is probably within the galaxy. Uh, uh, unclear. Thanos maybe has been outside the galaxy. 
there's a reason they call it Guardians of the Galaxy. Right. Um, yeah, I don't know where Thanos is. Um, but anyway, so I, I love this visual stuff. This is the mist stuff, right? I mean, this yeah. is very, very cool. Stuff's moving around. But look at the camera. It's still moving. Honestly, that's the thing that keeps me with this movie. That's the thing. If you, if you make this exact movie but make it all static film shots, I'm not sure I could get through it. Sure. Per- perhaps. But anyways, the more important question here is – how closely does this align with your understanding of the Superman cosmology? This is going to be a multi-part question. Um, a, how close does this align to the Superman cosmology? B, you know, do you approve or disapprove? Uh, I probably know what the answer to that is. But C, is there just one Superman cosmology or with 80 years of comics or whatever, there's a whole bunch of different cosmologies? Uh, to answer your last question, there are different versions of Kryptonian history and mythology and cosmology. In most of them, at some point, Kryptonian society at its apex colonizes other planets. Um, uh, you know, they move out, they become a vast empire of incredibly scientifically advanced uh, citizens um, in an almost utopian-like society. Right. And then it does to the point when Krypton finally explodes, it decays. This stuff, you know, with these stocks of babies that, again, looks to me like the Matrix, yep. um, this stuff is new, but it's not so new and different that I think it betrays some core of what Krypton is. What Krypton is specifically, I don't think is super important. In all the versions of the comics, it's usually about Superman rejecting it, uh, you know, whatever Krypton's native culture is, except in his fortress which we don't really have in this movie. I think this ship is supposed to be sort of his fortress of solitude. It certainly is a solitary place in what looks like the Antarctic, uh, or, or I guess maybe somewhere in the North Pole area. Um, so maybe we're going to see this converted into more of a sanctuary for Kryptonian and alien culture, which is what it's used as in the comics. Um, I like this scene, and I like the moving camera work for the most part. It's when the camera lingers too long, especially in the seconds leading up to something impactful, sure. that I think it kills the dramatic tension. Uh-oh. They don't really explain the suit, which I like, actually. He, I like know. that they don't explain it. I kind of like the armor-like look to it, you know, the ceremonial look with the metallic wings on the side. Again, I wish they didn't show it, though. I wish Superman would just come out of the, the ship wearing it, uh, and that's the first time we see the suit is him in it. See, yeah, I was coming from a different direction. Um, first of all, th- the fact that the S does not stand for Superman, I had no idea. That's awesome. Yeah, that's – I don't know when that started. I'm sure as hell that didn't start in 1938, but that is an old concept that the the S symbol is the Kryptonian word for hope. Um, if you've ever seen the Kryptonian language, all of the characters are in these pentagons, and then there's just like a hundred different little symbols, you know, lines, dots, circles, right. le- things that look like, you know, English letters. And the, the S in the pentagon is uh, the pentagram, uh, sorry, pentagon, uh, looks like hope. That's what that means. So that's accurate. Yeah. But, yeah, what I meant was, yes, he could have just walked out, but it was a two-second reveal. And, dude, it looks spectacular. This is the least goofy suit. Not only is this the least goofy Superman suit I've ever seen, I can't imagine designing one that's less goofy. I mean, it's really appealing. The blue and red, perfect. The blue in particular, it looks like uh, scales. like a, It does. Like a, 
you know, like an alligator or something. I yeah. love it. And that's the thing with Captain America. You know, it took him like five movies to finally get the cap suit right in Ultron. And they made it armored and they made it textured. And you know what I mean? It oh, wasn't I so spangly. I love Winter Soldier. I, I, I love the darkened colors. I think it shows. No, you're talking about the, the, the shield uh, suit. The, uh, the, hit, the, um, the super suit that he used in the beginning. when he yeah. was the, the stealth suit, they call it. Yeah, sure. no, I, I'm talking about the actual cap suits. You know, like he specifically at the end of Winter Soldier gets his World War II costume back. That's the cap suit needs to be red, white, and blue and have stars and so forth. The, right. The stealth suit was to serve a certain purpose early on in that movie. Yeah, that looked great, but I, I you got to have the red, white, and blue just like you got to have the red and blue with Superman. Um, I like that he's still testing his powers. Right. Um, one of the things I loved about, um, uh, <laughs> but here, all right. So now just in this language, you will give them something to strive to. They'll race behind you. They will stumble. They will fall. And eventually, uh, Jor-El is narrating this. They will okay. join you in the sun, Cal. This is more of this, you're the angel sent to Earth, modern, very Christianized take on Superman's purpose. But see, that that's good filmmaking, which is to start the exposition with his father, seeing him face-to-face, but to actually deliver the bulk of it, or at least half of it, in the background as he's learning how to use his powers. And uh, this is great. You know, one of the great things about Thor is that people think Thor can fly, and it's not really clear, but he just can jump and stay in the air for long periods of time, but he eventually has to come down, I think. I'm honestly not sure. I I think the hammer can defy gravity, and because it's so heavy, just because it's got... But you you never see Thor flying like this. In fact... right. The only flying we've seen um, Iron up Man. until right Iron Man, uh, although this is way more like Neo flying in the Matrix, and I'm not yes. going to say they stole that because the Wachowskis openly modeled Neo's Superman stuff on Superman, right? You know, on, on from Superman one on the, yes. on the first Richard Donner movie, which when that this looks came great. out, this looks really were, great. Yeah, I like this scene. I wish when he had taken off, though, he hadn't spent five seconds priming himself on the ground. If he had just exploded into the air, it would have been more dramatically interesting to me. Maybe that's just how I like films. I like films when things are a little bit more sudden. Now, Well, he, no, he was learning. That's what I'm getting yeah, to. No, it's, I don't mind learning. the jumps and the falls, but in that last di- expository monologue, they will stumble, right. they will fall. He's just sitting there priming for like 10 seconds, and you kind of get the sense okay, he's obviously going to take off at some point, and the longer they let him just sit there kneeling, the less impactful it is when he finally achieves flight. And in the scene where he tries to fly and he falls, that's Iron Man. That's the first Iron Man flight scene. Just Right. Oh, I was also going to make a, a, a comparison to Jessica Jones. Uh, and they're, right. very, they're very restrained on Jessica Jones' superpowers. We know that she's strong and mm-hmm. she can take a beating, but, you know... <laughs> she can jump, she can't fly, and uh, you know, at one point she's trying to describe that part of her power to her, and she talks about you know being a, a, a controlled fall yeah. essentially, which I which t- totally works with her character, um, and, and that's why I was just reminded that when Superman took that first jump, like he's uh, it, just a controlled fall, and then it's a bigger jump, and then he flies. I liked it, and but I really like in the Matrix actually how Neo when he flies he he kneels, mm-hmm. his, his arm shoots down, and the ground below him kind of bubbles a little bit. 
it and then right. just flings him in the air like elastic. Uh, sure, and, but in that mythology, yeah. he isn't at literally flying. He is right. bending reality around him that enables him to be in the air. So yep. that kind of priming and exploding makes a little bit more sense in that mythology. Yeah. I want to return very quickly to uh, the first Richard Donner Superman movie. Sure. When Christopher Reeves takes off in that in his first flight scene, audiences went nuts. I mean, people were blown away that you could actually depict a person flying and believe it for a second. So, uh, you know, when Superman flies in this movie and it's recalling the Richard Donner first flight scene, I think there's a very important reason for that because that was kind of a historic moment in depicting Superman. In the TV shows before then, in the 40s and 50s, he never flies. He sort of jumps in through a window or a doorway and he's, you know, and he's inside for the scene because they couldn't show a person flying. One of the things the first movie had to achieve was made you buy that someone could fly. Um, I believe actually the, the, the um, poster, the tagline was, you will believe a man can fly. This is a great scene and it was a great cut from the previous scene where Amy Adams is saying, you want to help people let me help you kind of thing right um and then you know his hesitancy to use his powers this is where uh kevin costner dies right in this yes scene? i hate this scene this is my second least favorite scene behind I, I, I hate the decision about to kill him um but just filmic wise the stuff going on in the car right now with the family is pretty subtle yeah. And I think this conversation needed to happen. Letting sure. his dad die, that made no sense. But the reason I, I'm okay with that decision of, of having Jonathan Kent die is you needed a catalyst that was so strong in Clark Kent's mind that he would never let something like that happen again. He would never refuse to use his powers you know, even though his dad told him to, essentially. Um, so what's the... Can you give me the history on... So in, in sort of the cosmological or mythological version of Superman that you like the most or that right. you know the most, um, is it the same thing? He comes as a baby, they adopt him. When do they realize that he's special? Um, how does that work in the comics? Okay, so in the in the original comics, or, or I actually don't know what happened in the 30s, but in the 40s and 50s, Clark comes to Earth with all of his powers preformed. There are comics about Super Baby and then Superboy. Um, there's an extended run where Superboy keeps going into a thousand years into the future to hang out with a group called the Legion of Superheroes, another bunch of superpowered teenagers who were inspired by him as Superboy. In 1985, they reboot the entire universe in an event called Crisis on Infinite Earths. In the new version of Superman, his powers develop like puberty. He develops them slowly over time. Like, like mutants? Uh, in terms of the puberty thing? As I understand it with mutants, once the mutant gene kicks in, your powers are just there. He has to slowly absorb enough solar power to, uh, gain, his pa to gain his stuff. And he gains different powers at different points in his life. The strength and the jumping comes sooner the heat vision is one of the last, and the freeze breath is... Well, dude, let me, I'm sorry to interrupt. Let me challenge you. We'll talk about one of our favorite comic book movies, X-Men First Class. Right. Magneto is not nearly as powerful at the beginning as at the end. Uh, that's true. Um, and, and, and one of the best scenes in that movie is when McAvoy helps him realize that it's shows not just... Shows him that a, image of them lighting Hanukkah candles. Uh, yeah. And, it's and a beautiful James, scene. I love it's that. beautiful. And the music and McAvoy's crying. And he has this great line about how true power comes between bliss and rage or something like that. Anger and love. serenity, I think. Yeah. Anger, yeah, anger and serenity. 
Um, uh, and, uh, you know, the point being, it's not a Jedi thing or a Vulcan thing of getting rid of your emotions. You know, it's about finding that, that place in between. And that's, you know, that's the moment in the movie where Fassbender gets super powerful and turns the radar dish that looks like from the Endor or whatever. Right. Uh, but, you know, but that's... <laughs> McAvoy doesn't realize that he unleashed the beast there. Right. And, and, I, I think that's what makes that scene powerful is that, yeah. in, you know, it's not it's sort of dramatic irony that he helps create his most powerful adversary who is going to find that magic point between the two emotional states and use it to do evil ultimately. And, and Magneto does a lot of really bad things over his career. I want to get back to Superman. So uh, it's not that he ever has to train. He just, as he gets enough power, he develops more abilities. Um, as they change continuity over the decades, the Kent's life changes also. Sometimes Jonathan Kent dies. Sometimes both of them die. Sometimes they're both still alive. I don't care that that they killed Jonathan Kent. I cared that that's how they killed him, that right. he dies saving a fucking dog. And I don't hate animals. I don't want to come off that way. But it is such a boneheaded, lame-ass decision to save a dog by running into a tornado. It's ridiculous. I mean, that could have been so easily solved by making it a baby. I just don't understand. Yeah, even a baby, I would have bought it. But the dog, come on, it's a dog. Um, you know, and Clark won't help because he has to get his mother to the overpass, which that's the exact line, which is 30 feet away. And she walks there of her own power. He doesn't do anything. He could help Jonathan without actually using his powers by just walking back to the damn truck. And so this is maybe another thing we can introduce. Here's Diane Lane being as good as possible. Right. Um, which is, I like to be constructive when criticizing movies. And you've actually done a great job of that. So we'll keep that going. Mm-hmm. I would say there's two things to fix that scene. One is have it be a human being of some sort. But the other is don't have that moment where, you know, like, for, like, frame it so when Kevin Costner runs back, the storm hasn't approached enough that you think he's going to die. Right. And yes. then suddenly, at the last moment, it accelerates, and then he puts his hand up just as Clark's about to fly. And, and in that split second where Clark doesn't make the decision, that he dies. You know, that would have been way more believable. You still would have seen it coming, but it just would have believable within the logic of the movie. And that's what I'm always talking about. I don't care how believable or unbelievable things are as long as the logistics work within the movie. I think we're on the same page about that one. Yeah, and it goes back to what I've said over and over again, that Zack Snyder lingers too much and sets up scenes too much to the point and telegraphs scenes too much to the point that he kills dramatic tension. If Clark, while his back was turned... Jonathan got swept up by the tornado, so he didn't even see it coming. That would have been a much more fraught and and at least vaguely forgivable scene because you think, okay, he's going to save the dog. Oh, my God, he's dead. I did not see that coming at all. It would have worked so much better. Totally. In the other versions of this story where Jonathan Kent dies, it is usually either heroic in Smallville. He has a heart attack trying to beat Lionel's father, uh, Lex Luthor's father, Lionel, who is threatening to expose Clark's identity to the world. In the first Superman movie, he, he just has a heart attack, but Superman's away in Metropolis. Uh, I think in the current version of the comics, he's the Kents are killed by an interdimensional alien Superman is fighting. 
you know, uh, Commander Locke. Sorry, I love yeah. this guy from the Matrix movies. He's yeah, he's so a great fantastic. actor. Yeah, um, he's underused in this movie, as everyone is. You know, have it either be that Jonathan dies for some actual reason, or he dies in such a way that Superman literally couldn't do anything, and it would have been a little bit more forgivable than thirty seconds of Ken, of of Jonathan saying, "No, don't use your powers." Again, those ships right there, those look like the Narada in Star Trek. The guy in the glasses here? Yeah. He, uh, M.L. He, Hamilton, Richard Schiff from West uh, Wing. He, he's in an amazing episode of the Sarah Connor Chronicles where, you know, uh, one of the so-called good guys who's supposed to be helping John Connor right. finds him and claims that they know from the future that he's going to help the machines create like a super weapon. Right. And so do you, do you, and then they find the guy f- from the past or, or the present, I suppose you got the future guy that had come back to the past and the present guy who has no idea what they're talking about. They're both getting tortured. <laughs> they don't, you know, and, and they finally admit it and they think they've stopped it. But then the guy gets arrested and they realize like the time loop just continued the whole, anyways, he, right. it's a great, it's a great time loop episode. Sure. Um, and, uh, he's, he's a fantastic character actor. That's in a bunch of stuff. I don't know his name. Um, I can't remember either. I wanted to point out a couple yes. of things. Sure. Uh, in that scene, the guy with the tie, the other reporter, uh, who's kind of a jerk, uh, his name is Lombard. He is in the comics. He's the sports editor for the Daily Planet. Um, and he is also a, he's got a big mustache in that, but and he's a big jockey-looking dude, but he's also sure. an asshole. So I, sure. I like that they grabbed him. Uh, no Jimmy Olsen. I, I don't understand. And as far (laughs) as I can tell, he's not in Batman v Superman either. I know we didn't, we didn't have Robin in three dark Knight movies. That that's true. Except for sort of a hint at it right at the end. Kind of, um, well, that's what people say, but isn't it implied that he's going to be Batman? I mean, his name is Robin. Sure. But Robin becomes Batman in some versions of the story. I mean, uh, when Batman disappears for a while, uh, in about 2010, uh, Dick Grayson becomes Batman because uh, you've got because he was Nightwing by that point and nobody cared about Nightwing. Um, so so here's a uh, here's Zod trying to do the Joker TV uh, takeover, right? Which I do like the, that they do this in text rather than see his face. Yeah, be- and I like that they do it in all the different languages. Mm-hmm. This is an eerie scene. Um, mm-hmm. I, I this is one of the scenes that I liked. I thought it was kind of creepy. I still don't have a complaint about the filming an hour and four minutes in, honestly. I mean, again, I, I know it's hard to separate the superficial stuff, like the filming and CGI, but to me, all the space, any anything involving like Krypton or space battles or whatever is way more interesting than Guardians of the Galaxy. Nothing else about it is more interesting, but just the way it's shot is way more, you know, just realistic looking and visceral. Um, like, let's put it this way. The, the aesthetic of the space stuff in this is more like J.J. Star Trek than Guardians of the Galaxy. I would yeah, say. but I, I mean, I, I've said this before. Visual style can only take you so far if you don't right. like the characters. And I don't care about any of these people. I, and by the end fight between Superman and Zod, I don't care about either of these people. I don't like either of them. They could both snap each other's necks and I wouldn't give a shit. In Guardians, you like all of those characters. Um, I don't want to get off, uh, start talking about Guardians um, too much. Can I, I... Uh, can I just jump in real quick? Sure. Um, so along, the, I just wanted to, to keep moving with that train of thought, which is, is it possible if all the cards fall right, and maybe this is a Batman v Superman topic, right? and Batman v Superman is pretty good, 
and then his second uh, Henry Cavill's second solo mm-hmm. is like near Winter Soldier level of coolness. Right. I could see that happening because now I go back and watch Cap One and I really love it. You know, but you watch even the Avengers and Chris Evans still hasn't a hundred percent mastered the role because it's such a difficult role for so many reasons. Right. But but then you see the Winter Soldier, and now he's my favorite Marvel character. I never saw that coming, or favorite uh, movie Marvel character, because of Chris Evans' performance. He keeps getting better and better. He was one of the bright spots in Ultron. Civil War is going to be amazing. So to, to bring it back to this, what I'm trying to say is... I liked Cavill's performance. It was a little two-dimensional. Again, not all his fault. But he has enough characteristics and charisma and can-do emotion on his face enough, I think, to make this character truly complex and likable. But it's all about writing and direction in the next few movies. Right, which is what I question because Zack Snyder so. is not very good at making you like characters. But I, would you would you agree with me that Cavill at least has the potential in the right hand? Sure, anybody has potential. I mean, Cavill... Uh, I don't think so. I don't Cavill, think anyone does. As Al Cedarvo in True Blood, Cavill was a likable guy. He had charisma and and charm, and he certainly rooted for him. People forget that when Chris Evans was announced as Captain America, there was right. a huge outrage and uproar about people who thought he there was no way he was going to be capable of doing it really quickly. The military stuff in this movie is so much better than the military stuff in the Marvel movies. I mean, if you watch the original Avengers uh, Battle of New York, right. they, have, they have shots of just the military shooting at the sky with zero connectivity. You can tell they filmed it way after the fact. You know, they, they, they throw in the military into these movies in ways that aren't really important. In this movie, the military does play a role, which with Superman, I would never have thought possible. I'm not saying it all connects, but I appreciate the balls, and aesthetically, at least, this is this is much better than any military. I think with Civil War, maybe you know, with capping against the government, we might right. see more. With I don't know how they use the military in this. I didn't think it was as hero worshipy as Michael Bay always does in every movie he's ever made. Right. I wasn't. I mean, I don't. We'll think it get was we'll get to the scenes all. that I really like. One of the, my favorite scenes with the military is when. Clark agrees to turn himself over to Fiora or where the hell her name is. This happens in about two scenes. And they want Lois, too. And Christopher Merloni, despite being very aware of how powerful these beings are, refuses to give her to them until she says, okay, I'll go with you. But I like that they, you know, he stands up. He refuses to be afraid. Um, there are other scenes with the military I really don't love. Um, I have to say, this kid looks exactly like Henry Cavill. Yeah. I mean, the, the the two best likenesses uh, of these sorts of movies, in my opinion, of little kids, is young Spock in the first Star Trek. Uh, really looks yeah. like a younger version of Zachary Quinto, who looks like a younger version of Leonard Nimoy. It's amazing. They get three generations, three different actors. Right. Look totally the same. Uh, but the biggest is young Chris Hemsworth at the beginning of the first Thor. Mm-hmm. I mean, that kid doesn't even look like you know Hemsworth's son. It looks like him. It's like the eyes and everything. So hard to do, you know. And sometimes they cast a kid like this who's maybe not the best actor because of the likeness and because he doesn't have that much to do from a minute standpoint. I would always say go with the superior actor like the young uh peter quill in guardians of the galaxy right. yeah that kid was fine um yeah to your question about could cavill become something more in the next movies it is certainly possible if he is given some more meat i think one of the reasons chris evans char- captain america character 
has grown so much and become so much better is starting in Civil War, they started to really challenge his character and give him more dimensionality and more complexity. He's very one note in Captain America, the first Avenger on purpose because the movie is just kind of a one note war film. Sure. They give him two lines about why he does what he does and that's pretty much why he does everything that he does. In the Avengers, they start to hint at you know, his pulling away, you know, it's clear he doesn't fit in in this world, but how disgusted he is with it doesn't really come to bear until he finally discovers that S.H.I.E.L.D. is trying to use the Tesseract to make weapons, but they don't finish that arc. It's in Civil War that he really starts to emerge as his, his own man with his own take on what it means to be an American and how that sometimes means coming into conflict with authority figures, which is what Captain America really is in the comics, especially starting in the 21st century and the Civil War comic book. With Superman, you got to remember, the next Man of Steel solo movie is not scheduled to come out until 2020. Seven years between this movie and uh, Man of Steel and the next one because... You think they don't trust him? I don't know why they're doing it that way. They got Batman v Superman, and then I guess they just got to flood the market with all the, the solo other hero films because then they're going to do Justice League 1, and then they're going to do Justice League 2, and then finally we're going to get the next Superman movie. And maybe then we'll finally get to figure out what this uh, Codex thing is. Is Clark ever going to do anything with it, this genetic registry of all the Kryptonians? It's, it's why that plot point doesn't sit well with me, because it's going to be seven years to actually address it, because I'm pretty sure it's not going to come up in Batman v Superman and if they're fighting Darkseid in Justice League, which I'm pretty sure, you know, that's my odds-on favor to be the big bad of Justice League, there's no way they're going to have time to create, to deal with this codex in that either. So, plus he's not going to have a whole lot of screen time because there's going to be like eight of these guys. Um, so, I, I don't know. Could in seven years we see a much more likable, interesting, nuanced Superman? Maybe. But it's... This is... So, I'm sorry, this... I love these two together. This is what makes me think this could work going forward. These two have great chemistry. And it's, again, the, the Thor comparison. He's both condescending, but also just loves people, has come to love human beings. Now, he's been on Earth way longer than Thor was in the first Thor movie. Right. Um, he's grown up as a you know a human superhero in disguise, pretending to be a human. Um, but, uh, you know, just the way they talk to each other... It, Meaning it could have been way more condescending even to Amy Adams, but they make her very, very intelligent and perceptive. Oh, there it goes. We knew that was happening. Right. I, uh, also, we talked through it, but you notice there was another scene of Superman in a church. So more of this direct, you know, Superman as religious figure, not as immigrant figure. Is that from the originals? And did Daredevil steal that concept? No. I mean, yes, every once in a while, I'm sure Superman has gone into a church. There was... Okay, but it's not, it's, it's not a Matt Murdock situation. No, his relig Superman's religion is never an overt part of his character. I mean, he grew up in Kansas. I'm sure he was raised in some measure of Christian faith, but it's never really talked about. Um, they occasionally address the fact that Superman has religions that worship him in the comics because, of course, there would be, you know... Wonder Woman has something like that. They don't talk about this almost ever, but they do exist, these cults that worship the superheroes and believe they're actual godlike beings. 
but he usually kind of dismisses them as a, a silly way to approach what he is and what he can do. Um, Matt Murdock, his Catholicism is a huge part of his character. I mean, oh, it is yeah. a central part of what makes Daredevil Daredevil. Yeah. Um, so I don't think in any way that uh, the Daredevil TV show took a page from this scene. I don't think they they were inspired by Superman. I think they just looked at the comics like, wow, he goes to church like twice a, every month. Uh, we need to have some church scenes. Yeah. Um, the, the, one, the one advantage that the Cavill-Adams relationship has over the Thor-Jane um, Foster relationship is that... You know, Superman's going to mostly be on Earth. Now, I do want to get to this question later about whether they should be thinking cosmic movies with Superman with the DC movies. I don't think they should be. He doesn't do a lot of cosmic stuff. Every every time he ever goes into space, like he's kidnapped onto some alien planet, his goal is always to get back to Earth. You know, he's not Thor guarding the different realms. He's not the Green Lantern Corps protecting the entire universe. He is an Earth-based hero who just happens to be from another planet. Here's another actress who makes one facial expression the whole time, and it kills the dramatic value of any lines she says, yes. which are all horribly written. But, but that, look, that lusty look of hers gave me the idea I mentioned very early on, which would be, instead of having Zod coming for the Codex, which we have no idea why or what the Codex really is, right. what if she or some female person was the bad guy and wanted to be impregnated by, um, by Superman to, to continue their race, like to force him, you know, for them to procreate, basically? Well, it's funny you should mention that because there is a comic character who shows up every once in a while who wants exactly that. Her name is Maxima. She is a princess from a warrior race from some other planet that I, I'm blanking on the name of. And every time she comes to Earth, she mostly wants Superman to be her consort. She is a not particularly scary, mostly goofy villain who they have not done much with in this darker, new version of DC continuity. But in the late 90s, early 2000s, she showed up fairly often. So there's a character that specifically wants what you're talking about. Um, and when you mentioned a female uh, antagonist early on, that was the first character I thought of. So it's funny that we were on the same page. So uh, this whole scene or set of scenes coming up is one of the cooler parts of the movie, I would say, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah. You know, this for one, this is an interesting take on Superman's relationship uh, to Krypton. The idea that it's not the red sun, Rao, that takes away his powers. It's Kryptonian's atmosphere. It's the fact that Superman grew up as a baby and acclimatized to the air pressure and the composition of the atmosphere of Earth. And so he can't breathe Kryptonian air uh, or deal with its gravity. Uh, I find all of that a different take and very interesting. And it does save them having to introduce kryptonite, which there's just, there's so much in this movie already that trying to throw kryptonite in there already also would have just overwhelmed it completely. So to present him with a weakness that does make logical sense, um, that isn't kryptonite, uh, I, I liked a lot. Oh, um, the atmospheric difference. Yeah. The atmospheric difference is I what takes his powers that. away. I thought it was very yeah. clever. Yeah. Um, I love that. I had never considered that. An event, and it does make him stronger, actually, in the end, because he is able to be, be in both atmospheres, right? Or 
Or it's more that they come down to earth, and that's why he has the advantage. Yeah, they come down to earth, and that's why it's the advantage. This is also a clever move by Zod. Oh, no, he does adapt. They're letting him adapt. Sort of. This is a mistake Uh, by Zod, obviously. He doesn't really adapt. Uh, Lois inserts the key thing in, and Jor-El changes the atmospheric composition so that he can breathe and regain his abilities. looks like Simon Tam there for a sec. A little bit, yeah. Actually, a lot. That's funny. Um now we have another kind of overstylized, more laundry. Zack Snyder really likes laundry on clotheslines in this film for yeah, some yeah, weird dir- reason. Dirty laundry isn't exactly subtle. Yeah. Um, so here we go. They're in his head, and now here's Zod's take on all of this. And this is where we get to Zod as Zod has always been, which is, I want to come to Earth, rebuild Krypton, but it's going to kill all of the oh, humans. Look at that. See, that's like a ga- guardian shot, but way it's more realistic. It's a very guardian shot. But it's way more realistic and way more dynamic. Um, I don't know. I mean, th- you know, he still has some stuff retained from the from Zack Snyder's old days. Zack Snyder, that is, from his, like in 300. It's way, it's still highly stylized, obviously, but it has a way more realistic uh, end result, I suppose. Uh, I wanted to ask you, Mm-hmm. Um, before this scene starts getting really cool, actually, uh, it's already pretty cool just looking at it. Where, where did, where? I'm sorry. Where did this particular aesthetic of the Kryptonians or whatever come from? Like the ship designs, the colors, the textures. Uh, is is there any connection between this and the comics, or this is just Zack Snyder's production team coming up, you know, with something totally different? I think most of it is. Uh, independent of the comics. I mean, I've talked about the other sci-fi franchises. I think some of this cop takes visual styles from. In the comics, uh, Krypton is depicted as this sort of utopian-like city. Um, I don't know if futurist is an artistic style, but mm-hmm. in classic science fiction, there is a cla- uh, an aesthetic where cities are depicted as long, very tall spires going into the sky, and they're just large collections of those. Everything is shiny and bright, There's a lot of sci-fi art from the pulp era that looks like this. And that's kind of what Krypton looks like. You have these big towering spires in these highly urbanized settings. Um, You know, things are flying around. Um, This is this more stripped down, uh, you know, a few buildings coming out of the dirt here and there. Yeah, but it has a cyberpunk sheen to it. I mean, on the ship, there are like Matrix wires everywhere. Oh, it's very Matrix. It's very H.R. Geiger. It looks a lot like, um, you know, the alien ships and the Mm -hmm. alien ship design. The scene... Uh, on um, Uh on the the the, where Clark meets Jor-El for the first time, I think is extremely uh, owes something to uh, Alien and Aliens um, and the the H.R. Geiger aesthetic. So I don't know exactly where they took it from. I don't think they took it directly from the comics, or at least they maybe looked at a few and put a spin on it. Um, You know, but and I honestly don't know what Kryptonian ships looks like. You almost never see them because everything you learn about Krypton is usually through flashback or, you know. So, if you know, if for your superhero good guys, it's all about good looks. For superhero bad guys, it's all about the voice. 
You know, I mean, that's what makes Ronan cool, essentially, other mm-hmm. than the makeup. That's what, you know, Tom Hiddleston, it's more subtle, but, it, you know. But it's also a great voice, especially when he really gets angry yeah. and, and uh, murderous. Yeah. It's what I don't think works about Shannon because I, he's got this weird nasal twitch to his voice. It's nasally. It's not scary. Oh, yeah, it's just unappealing. I mean, even... Um, I know you don't love Dark Knight Rises. I I initially really didn't like Dark Knight Rises. It's it's grown on me, and, and I used to really not like um, Bane, but his voice has grown on me with multiple viewings. At least it's interesting and funny and different. And it's it w- interesting. It's just hard to understand. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I actually watch these movies occasionally with the subtitles on. And I, some of that is just because Tom Hardy is not. I don't know if he's just not great at delivering lines or if people just don't write lines that he's good at enunciating or they write him accents he's not good at. He's like Vin Diesel. He's hard to understand in almost everything. He's hard to understand in The Revenant, as I understand it. He's hard to understand in Mad Max, which is why he only says six things in the whole movie, pretty much. Um, God. We don't have to talk about Mad Max. Uh, But to the Christopher Nolan movies, the Joker is an awesome bad guy in part because of that voice. Yep. Um, but it's also the expressiveness of Heath Ledger. Sure. Michael Shannon's voice is nasally and yeah. he's very unexpressive. Yeah. You know, this is another Kryptonian who's like, just makes one face the whole time. It's really, really boring. Uh Oh, is this the, uh, is this the, uh, wrath of Khan? Oh no, they don't stick it in his throat. No, but it's a little matrixy when they're yeah. sucking the, uh, the tracker out of Neo's stomach. Yeah. Um, I have to admit those, uh, holographic helmets look really seamless. Yeah, I like the helmet thing. They're cool. Why she had to throw Lois into this chamber, I don't know. She hasn't done anything but cooperate with them. So why they got to throw her into a wall is I like me. it. I like it. If you're going to be a good guy, you got to get your ass kicked occasionally. I guess. I yeah. mean, you're just kind of being a dick there. Yeah. Well, that's, that's that seems to be their main motivation for everything is just being a dick. Yeah. Oh, right. He gave her the chip or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lois. The command key, I think it's called, because they can't say crystal because that's the older Superman movies. But you know, it's the same thing. And this is another advantage of Amy Adams over Natalie Portman, even though Natalie Portman was much better written for and Thor. Um, it's just that you know they make Jane Foster an astrophysicist so that she can relate to and understand a bit where Thor is from and that whole thing. She's mm-hmm. just a- Amy Adams, you know. Lois Lane's just a journalist, but she's extremely smart. She's a connection with with Clark, and you know, she she made the connection with the chip, right? Um, did he tell right. her specifically like where and when to use it? I don't think so. No, I guess she figured it out. Uh, it's also should be said they don't talk about this at all. But in just this really movie. quick, man. Sorry, it's great to get Russell Crowe and Amy Adams together very yeah. briefly. You, I don't think we've ever seen these two actors on the share screen before. Uh, you might be right. Um, Lois Lane's character also, she is the daughter of a career military soldier who becomes a general in the army by the later comics. Uh, and I really, uh, they don't talk about this all in this film, but she, you know, she grew up in a military society, you know, culture. And so she's very can do. Um, now we're getting to the scene. I love this scene. I like how sudden it is. I like how nothing is telegraphed. So is is he in her head or he's in the no, ship's he's, computer? He's in the ship's computer oh, and okay. Zod has to delete him from it later. This is reminding me of something sci-fi that we've both seen. I can't remember what, what Russell Crowe's doing here. Like, or the ship's, mm. is it a Star Trek thing with the ship's computer with the holographic appearance controlling shit? I don't know. I, I'm not sure about that. I oh, mean, there's his buddy. Yeah, uh. Pete. 
They mentioned his name once, even though he is also pretty big in the comics. I love it. They fly over the IHOP. You're going, uh-oh, they're going to crash, and they don't. And then later they do crash into the IHOP. Oh, she's And everything else. Right. But yeah. it's this is how I think a scientist would fight, is you know outwitting them, using yep. the different environmental controls. Um, and this moment right here, I that think this great. is one of the best shot oh, scenes. Yeah. I love that. I this don't know how they extre- did that. This, this one really shot, cool. very hard to do. There were, now, that last, before they cut, it was a double, the guy in the background, I believe. I could be wrong. Could be, but it's an extremely well put together it's shot. It's excellent. Um, the scene is kind of funny, and it works. <laughs> Move your head to the left. Right. Yeah. And it works to uh, Jor-El's character, who is the only one who has a reason for being not, you know, monotone and emotionless. Because oh, yeah, he's a scientist. This is um, great. I love this shit. I just right. like I just like good visual science. Fi- like, this movie, now that I've seen it, I'll probably watch once a year just for the visuals. Um, I, I will never watch this movie again in all likelihood. Really? That bad? It's just, it's unmemorable. It's uninteresting. I don't find it super exciting or compelling. And when we're going to get to the big fight scene that's about to start in about five minutes, it really just drags and drags and drags. It gets so boring. I I mean, the Serenity fight scene is better, and it's five minutes long. The Avatar fight scene is better, and it's half this length. The Avengers fight scene is 40 minutes long. It's two-thirds the length of this fight scene, and it's so much better. So this... Yeah, so this movie, structure-wise and quality, to me, is very close to Thor The Dark World, the second Thor movie. Sure. In that you have some little bit of action in the beginning, just to, you know, set things up. Right. And then you have a first third, which is pretty good. Um, for, you know, if you start when, he, when, when uh, Clark's on Earth, um, and then, you know, all the, you know, little bit of Earth stuff that we get at the beginning of Thor 2 with Natalie Portman on that awkward date, which is great, and, you know, Kat Dennings, and et cetera. So the first third of, of both of these movies has some interesting dramatic stuff going on. Now, the, the, Thor 2 had the benefit of, oh, this is great. Sorry. Oh. And this is also... In almost every version of the comics, oh. Superman first leads, meets Lois Lane by saving her, usually from some kind of falling vehicle. It's a lot of times it's a plane that's about to crash. Sometimes it's a bus or a car that's gone off a bridge. I think one time Lois Lane just jumps off a bridge. Superman saves uh, her, and she goes, "Lois Lane, Daily Planet, can I ask you a few questions?" Uh, so I'm so, sorry. Th- these spaceships landing are, look so much more realistic than when they land in Guardians. I don't know what it is about Marvel. You know, I know you don't love this movie, and, and I'll I'll stop with the special effects stuff. But you know, my last big thought is just that it really is connecting in this movie. That scene of him saving Lois looks better than any Jane Foster Thor thing in either of the Thor movies. Are the this better than the Thor movies? Absolutely not. Definitely not better than the first, and probably not better than the second because there's this no might humor. actually be better than the first Thor. The first Thor is oh. not a very good. Oh, movie. I love the first Thor. Really, it's it. just it's confused. It it looks weird. It's it's so clunky. No, the thing you have to understand though is that what makes the movie great isn't the Asgard stuff, isn't the Frost Giant stuff. It's the him and the three on the science team on the planet. That's the thing. I find it hilarious. And if you don't think Thor with with uh, Natalie and Kat Dennings and Stellan Skarsgård, if you don't find their interactions funny, then I I would totally get not liking the movie. Well, I love the scene when Thor and Stellan Skarsgård are getting drunk. drunk. And I like the scene where he breaks into the shield place to try to get his hammer back and he can't. Mm-hmm. The scenes on Earth are better, 
but the movie doesn't seem to know whether it wants to be mostly on Earth, mostly on Asgard, what the focus well, is. I'm it, glad it's you, confused I'm, in its direction. I'm glad you brought that up, Matt, because in my commentary for Thor, which I'm going to release um, at some point, maybe I'll wait till Ragnarok next year, but... Um, I talk about how normally the guilty pleasure stuff is the sci-fi fantasy, and you have to earn it with the human drama. But in Thor, the guilty stuff is the human drama and comedy on Earth in the middle, and the stuff that you have to slog through is the confused and not always good-looking stuff going on on Asgard and, and the totally. Frost Giant planets. That's what I'm saying. That's a movie I specifically love for the middle act. And this is true with a lot of movies, I think. I think the Avengers middle act is the best part of the movie, dramatically. I think the Guardians middle act and the jail and everything that happens after that with the Collector is the best part of that movie. Um, yeah, I don't yeah. know. I think it's it's it's... It, it's easy to do an open an action open and it's extremely difficult to do final scenes. I mean, even the dark Knight, one of the best movies ever, you know, there are a lot of flaws in that final 20, 25 minutes of that movie with the, boat, Oh yeah. With Once the, boat. the fight with the Joker is over, it's not yep. nearly as interesting. The final confrontation with two face. Oh, I actually uh, like that. I'm talking about it, the boats, not blowing each other up. Yeah. Uh, no, the, the best scene in, I mean, all the scenes with the Joker are just Uh-oh. wonderful in the Dark Knight. But the this looks the, like an acid trip here. Sorry. Yeah, the t- the trying to transport, uh, you know, um, Aaron Eckhart, uh, Harvey Dent to prison, and the Joker trying to blow up the police van. That's I think the best scene in that movie. And there are so many great scenes in that movie. So Aaron and I talk about how they should have made that essentially the, the the climax like they should have pushed the rachel harvey stuff forward and shortened the ending mm-hmm. and it made that you know lead directly into the final confrontation um instead of having this whole gimmick with the boats and then you know he's gonna go save the innocent people but you know the but they're shooting at him eh, whatever it's sloppy who cares this movie I mean, we've already had about 20 minutes of action, and we have at least, I think, 30 to 40 minutes more of action. So this will be a good time to launch big um, big picture, big issue stuff. Now, before the podcast, and really leading up to it, Matt and I have talked about stuff both big and small about the movie. By the way, this reminds me of The Destroyer in, uh, yes. in Thor. That's the exact thing I thought about was the confrontation scene in Thor with The Destroyer. Um, you know, again... Something that they got from somewhere else that's not actually unique. Um, I will say in this scene, I do love when he starts punching uh, Zod in the face and he goes, you think you could threaten my mother? Um, Which is maybe a little bit too much uh, related to, um, what am I thinking about? Uh, Remind me of First Class a little bit with uh, uh, Magneto and um, Shaw. But still, I, I mean, that made me laugh and I smiled a little. All right, love the A-10 Warthogs. This is great. This is the military right. stuff. Now you, know, now, you talk about how they, they tear through Smallville here rather yeah. than take it out. But not only that, in Thor, in this exact scene, what do they do? Natalie Portman and them get the civilians out of the town. And right. here, they tell everyone to lock themselves in their, you know, their various stores and houses so they can be right. killed. You know, It's not just that they're, It's not just that they're fighting in town. It's that the civilians didn't leave. Well, there is a question of how long a time you'd have to evacuate, but I mean, yes, the the, the complete the complete lack of care about innocent civilians in these scenes really bothers me. I mean, 
they destroy this city. I mean, they just or town. They destroy two thirds of Smallville. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure people are dying when this is happening. When giant planes are blowing up, and you can see them taking out the fronts of buildings. If you're hiding in a building oh. and the front collapses, you're gonna die because the whole <laughs> building is gonna fall apart. There's the IHOP. Uh, but- yeah, I I, have, I I will say, man, um, I, I do think I will watch this again, maybe, uh, <laughs> but doing the commentary is like the ideal way of watching this because we can just, it, you know, just pay attention to the glorious I- images and not have to pay attention to the, di- this is the least I've paid attention to the actual dialogue in any of my commentaries. Right, because uh, so little of it is It's uh, just not memorable. important. And there's, yeah, there's no original interesting lines, you know? This whole sequence with this gives us a, an evolutionary advantage and history has proven anything. The evolution always wins. And she delivers it with that same monotone, one facial expression style. It just doesn't work. I would watch this again and rip on it with you over and over sure. again. But sitting down and listening to this crap. Yeah. Well, that's what I was I was thinking. The next time I watch this will be when I have a bunch of friends over and we're having beers and shit and just making fun of the movie and watching it. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. But in that case, I'd put on something a little bit more fun probably. Right. Like the um, 50 other Marvel movies. That, right. Yeah. The, the monster kicking them around. I mean, it looks like CGI, but again, the, with the, between the texture and the movement, here comes the helicopters. This is always right. a bad idea. The military to get involved. Uh, it's well shot, though. It does look like Michael Bay, uh, just from a yeah. shooting standpoint, which I'm totally fine with. Some Sears isn't Sears out of business at this point. Um, Maybe people have complained about the product placement in uh, this cares? movie, but I actually lived in a town in southeastern Oklahoma that's probably a lot closer to what Smallville is yeah. than you know anybody who lives in Philly or Boston or LA or a sure. big city. And there are some mom and pops, but there are also a lot, a lot of chains. There was a Sears, there was a Denny's, there was not an IHOP. Um, So, you know, this looked to me like what a small town in the Midwest might actually look like. Um, uh, So I didn't mind all the product placement. You'd be surprised how much big corporations have kind of infiltrated these small towns that we think are supposed to be these independently functioning micro economies. Okay, so... This movie came out one year after the original Avengers. Uh, yes. I- exactly the same budget, essentially. Okay. Uh, th- this movie made um, around uh, $668 million worldwide. Right. And Avengers uh, did $1.5 I think? Correct. So Avengers had two and a half times the, ta- you know, the, uh, the Taken or whatever. Right. Now, if you look at this... In the in the later urban scenes, okay, mm-hmm. the Avengers final battle is so much better because of the characters and the writing and the stakes and the direction. Mm-hmm. But this is far superior in terms of CGI. I I, I mean the Chitari, sure. you know, don't. And look... I love the way she fights. Yeah. I like this super speed grab. That's okay. cool. I thought you were gonna hate this because this is totally a video game thing, and I love it. But I can yeah. get people who don't like it. This is great too. Him fighting the right. destroyer or whatever. I think that's supposed to be non... There are always three soldiers. There's Zod, his friend, who is usually female, Fiora, or, or she's got lots of names. And I think there's always sort of a thuggish, brutish, big monstery guy. Uh, who I think his name is Non in some versions of it. Um, in some versions of the comics, I think he gets lobotomized, and they, and they screw <laughs> it up, and that's why he's psychotic. Um <laughs> 
Um, okay. Or whatever Kryptonians yeah. do to your brain, sure. but it's brain surgery gone awry, and right. so he's just a psychopath. This is awesome. I'm sorry, man. This looks great. It, yes, this would get boring on a ton of eggs, but watching it with you, I'm here, already bored. Uh, yeah, well, oh, I hope I'm at least <laughs> keeping you somewhat interested. I'm bored watching this. Okay, I'm not bored good. Talking to I'm you. glad. But what I was going to say, buddy, is you know this was 2013 but right. avengers in 2012 people don't know this was a rushed project now w- you and i have talked about how everyone was trying to get their hands in age of ultron and whedon was uh, you know not thrilled about that yeah um but the first movie too uh, i believe was supposed to come out 2013 but they wanted to capitalize on the momentum of uh of the solo movies in 2010 and 2011 um and as a side note, I hypothesize when they realized that Tom Hiddleston could be the Avengers bad guy. They knew that he could be the Thor bad guy. But when did they know that Tom Hiddleston could be the Avengers bad guy? Because it was a year after – it was less than a year after Thor. So anyways, my point being, two years after this movie, Avenger, uh, Avengers Age of Ultron came out, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I personally have no problems with the CGI in Ultron, even though it's more clearly CGI, but it's so um, consistent uh, in, right. all, in all parts of the movie that once you just your eyes a, 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 you know, adjust to it, it's definitely a conscious choice not to go this route. You and I have talked about this before. Does Marvel have a realism problem or they just don't care? I think they don't care. Yeah. I, personally, I think realism is really overrated with science fiction and comic books. Comic books especially. For the record, I agree with you. I just wanted to bring up that point and, and get your feedback on it. So go ahead. I don't think it's a problem. I think it is an awareness that what makes comics interesting is that they are fantasies. They are power fantasies and escapist fantasies You know, designed for kids still who feel marginalized in class. You know, most comic characters are meant to appeal to people who feel ostracized or different in some way. It's why Spider-Man is so popular, because Peter Parker was a comic book reader, basically, a nerdy kid with glasses and zits and no friends, which is not what comic readers are actually like, but it's what the stereotype is, who gets to be... Side note, I hate Spider-Man. Not that I hate okay. the movies, I just hate the character. And I was probably the one person on the planet that was not happy when Marvel got partial rights back for him. I was happy for him to stay on Sony putting out mediocre movies because now everyone's going to be talking about Spider-Man instead of Black Panther or whatever, you know? Uh, they will be for a little while. I, I don't think Spider-Man is going to be the uh, key character in Civil War. Um, I think he's going to be used sparingly. I I don't think uh, Black Panther's status is really in danger I don't think the Amazing Spider-Man movies were very good. Um, So I'm happy to see better movie makers get a character that's pretty popular. Even if you didn't like Spider-Man, though, do you agree with my take that he appeals to people because he is the cliched comic book reader who gets to be a comic book hero? That might be happening on a subconscious level. I just think people love the concept. And I did, too, when I was a kid, you know? Yeah. I mean... It's a great superpower to be able to swing around and you make your webs, but you know you can right. climb up buildings. I mean, it's, it's a superpower made for New York City. That's the whole point, right? 
Sure. Um, I just I, I I want them to keep him a ground level guy. He doesn't. I need think to they be will. An Avenger. He does not. I don't think he's going to be an Avenger. I know. I almost wish they put it on Netflix, but it's too big of a property. They have to do movies. You know. And Spider-Man's not dark. It's never really been dark. I mean, in the 90s, it was a little bit when comics were generally terrible across the board. Yeah, Super Spider-Man movies got dark, right? Yeah, but they didn't work when they got dark. Spider-Man 3 was the worst of the first bunch, in part because uh, Sam Raimi didn't bring his kind of joviality to it because he left the project. Right. Uh, and then the amazing Spider-Man movies try to be dark and it kind of just falls flat another shot of a baby penis Zack Snyder <laughs> likes showing penis in his movies you ever notice that I think that's there's probably a, a Nirvana tribute is my guess I, I don't know what that is I mean there's a lot of boobs in movies so I think it's high time that men's genitalia kind of got put in films too but there's a lot of penis in Zack Snyder movies and I'm not nearly the first person to point that out I, I guess what I was saying just to wrap up my Avengers comparison was that? Want to talk about baby penises? No, 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 no. Back to uh... sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. All right. Yeah. Well, it's good that we don't see Thor's baby penis because it's right. probably pretty big. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, it just seems that one year after the Avengers, they got way more for their money from an effects standpoint in this movie than the Avengers. And the fact that the Avengers is a thousand times better is just proof that when you have Whedon and you know great characters, it overrides everything else. Again, yeah. just to wrap up, does Marvel have a realism problem? I'm cool with it. I just like the dynamic side of things. You know, that's what bothered me about Guardians of the Galaxy was just that it was static. It was sure. so it was so pretty, almost in like a prequel, um, you know, way. It's so colorful, so static, so pretty. Obviously, it's way better than the prequels, but just aesthetically, this this is more what I like. The Star Trek 09, more what I like. It's just a it's you know, and and, and I'm. Nah. Yeah, go, go ahead. No, I'm just saying for aesthetic in sci-fi movies in general, not this, not the design. Oh, but that looked great. Yeah, I love this. This is like straight from Mass Effect or something. I'm, yeah. I, I dig it. And people have said that the Fallout box cover is basically the guy with the mask is basically what these Kryptonian soldiers look like. Uh, Honest Trailers has a great take on this. Um, I, I think Screw Attack has something called Everything Wrong with This Movie in 15 Minutes. It's pretty good. Um, the problem I think with realism, this is straight out of Star Trek. I mean, that's the Narada, that's Nero's ship. Um, the problem with realism and a realistic approach is when you then start doing stuff that doesn't exist in real life, it invites questions and takes people out of the moment in a way that when you're over the top, oversaturated color, when it's so bright and obviously, uh, you know, fantasy or science fiction but you know fantasy in the broad sense of it's made up yeah you you go along for the ride a little bit better especially when the characters work um I, wait i'm sorry just just to stop you real quick the the design on these are actually straight from mass effect more than uh star trek right i'm just talking about those ships with no no prom. i'm saying those ships are the reapers who are the big bad oh, guys see, through, i never like, played entire... mass effect i, yeah. I my friends do. I know they're great games, uh, except I heard the third one's an ending sucks ass. But yeah, but they um, they DLC the ending to be cooler. But this is yeah. exactly it's three it's three legs. It's a giant energy right. beam. It looks exactly like this. Sorry to interrupt with something that uh, irrelevant. Go ahead. Sure. Now, I mean, obviously, the the exception to all of this is the Star Wars prequels are super over the top with their CGI. Doesn't look at all realistic, but the characters suck and the script sucks too. And you really, you know, those movies are terrible. Um, but the sweet spot is 
for me is decent CGI that is bright and colorful because these are comic books. These are comic book imagery and comics are bright and colorful and they are one of the things I really like about them. Uh, you know, with some characters that I like. This more realistic take, it doesn't work for me because if I want realism, I can get realism in every other movie. If I'm going to see something with comics, I want to escape into a world that is prettier and more interesting than the one that I live in because the real world is pretty ugly, especially these days, and it's going to get worse if we don't solve climate change. So I want something bright and colorful. I don't want something covered in mud. Um, And the brown palette at the heart of this film doesn't do it for me because it makes everything, uh, you know, it looks dirtier and danker and muddier and not attractive. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's something that's just an aesthetic difference that we have perhaps, um, you know, but again, this tone wouldn't work with age of Ultron. Um, and that's why remotely. Yeah. With Ultron, you know, do the robots look quote unquote real? How do we know what fucking robots are going to look like? You know what I mean? I mean, this is all speculative anyways. Right. But when you have Thor and Captain America, you can't have, you know, Reaper ships here. And you know, like, you can't have this color palette. Right. Avengers is just a colorful universe. That's why I prefer X-Men overall, just in general movies and books, is it's sort of between here and the Avengers, right? It's a little yes. bit more funny and, and humor-filled uh, and colorful, but not as over-the-top ridiculous as Spider-Man or the Avengers. Right, but that's where I think this movie comes up short, is because the DC universe is colorful too. It's not more washed out than the Marvel universe. Aesthetically, it's almost identical in terms of palette, it's printed on the same ink. Yeah, can I? Can let me just let me let me. Uh, yeah, I guess I'm talking mostly about the movies, I, I, right? Because I, I know movies from all those three universes, and I know comics from X Men and Avengers. I don't know a lot of comics from DC Universe. Yeah. Um, although I will say, when I did read some Batman uh, growing up, it was the Dark Knight ish stuff. It was always the it, the darkest shit I could find. But anyways, go ahead. Right. Well, what I was going to say is so. The Dark Knight movies, the Christopher Nolan movies, have a very washed-out dark palette by design, and it works great with Batman's character, where, to be honest, most of the comics are set at night. But Superman, if you look at Superman's uniform in the comics, it is a bright blue, a bright red, and a vibrant yellow behind the shield. These darker, washed-out colors for Superman's costume betray What I think is a fundamental aspect of Superman's character and the world Superman lives in, Metropolis is the bright daylight contrast to the dark, scary, washed-out Gotham. They are supposed to be very much at at opposite ends of a spectrum. And in geography, they're not even that far away from each other. Metropolis is is supposed to be sort of in the Delaware area. And Gotham is a little further north, basically where we think of as like New York City or maybe like northern New Jersey. By the way, um, uh, this movie was filmed almost completely in Illinois and Chicago, as was most of the uh, Dark Knight movies, except for Dark Knight Rises, which took a lot from Newark, New Jersey. So just bringing it full circle. And Christopher Nolan wrote this story, not the screenplay, which I had no idea before I started researching this. It's interesting that he's still involved, even though his universe is completely disconnected to this one. Go ahead. Right. I just, I feel like I I have a big complaint that I think Zack Snyder misses the point when he makes, adapts films. He is great at taking visuals and realizing them on screen. 
There are great visuals in this movie. There are some great visuals in Watchmen and 300 that are direct takes from the comics. They're based on, you know, this story is not one specific Superman story, so there's not as much of a one-to-one parallel. But there are plenty of one-to-one parallels that I've already seen in Batman v Superman trailers, which is very dependent on The Dark Knight Rises. But he doesn't get the characters that he makes films about. Watchmen isn't about a story about conquering the planet or, or whatever Watchmen is about. It's a meta text look at why anybody would want to do this in the first place. If superheroes existed, why who would want to be a superhero? You'd have psychopaths and insane people and glory hounds. That's what Watchmen's about. The 300 isn't really about anything. Um, right. There's no in the comic. There's no big overtones about freedom or, or any of this kind of lame, vaguely 21st century American politics crap. And uh, Snyder just tries to shoehorn it in. He doesn't get the materials that he adapts into these movies. And I think he doesn't get Superman. He doesn't get what, why Superman's appealing. By the way, big nerd thing here. Right. So in the Avengers in 2012, these sort of advanced planes were F-22s which right. is notoriously like a multi-trillion dollar, multi-decade long project that got shelved because it was a failure. Mm-hmm. And they, I think that was like announced in 2012. Uh, but meanwhile, they've been developing the F-35, which is the single engine that rotates that we see here. So right. Man of Steel got it right. I mean, these planes are definitely happening. I mean, there are... Okay, F- that's cool. Yeah, there are F-22s out there, but they're not. these are far more advanced. I, I like that they work that in. This is the thing. People are always like, you love, you know, gunplay, and you love action movies, and you love military stuff, but you're like a liberal, you know, like an anti-war, anti-gun liberal. It's like, yeah, in my head it works. You know, and this brings up the the apocalypse stuff here. And I know that you're very upset about the 9/11 connotations of this m- movie, but honestly, there's been a million of these since 9/11, including the Avengers. I mean, the Battle of New York, way less stuff was destroyed. That was just because it was Disney. I think Joss would have destroyed more if he could. Yeah, I it. don't. I don't agree with that at all. I don't think because like, what was that... the threat? I mean, that was the thing. I mean, Loki has this whole army. They can't even take down like one twentieth of New York, and then they blow up the Master Ship and all these organic looking mm-hmm. beings just fall over and die is ridiculous it's ridiculous okay. no i can i don't mind the city getting destroyed <laughs> I although i think it's insane <laughs> the amount of damage they do and the number of people uh, who i can't help but assume are dead i assume thousands of people are dying and we're not supposed to care about them well i do well, I, I would assume that in Battle of New York, too. They just didn't show it. I, by the way, I can't uh, believe... There is way less property damage, and there's a way more concerted effort by the heroes to get people damage. to safety. Here, these people are just having a SmackDown brawl, and they don't uh, give a shit about anybody. Uh, Here's what bothers me about this. It's not the damage. It is the specific visuals that I think Zack Snyder took directly from video of what happened on September 11th, 2001. It's not just skyscrapers falling. It is clouds of smoke and people running away in terror from those clouds. It is direct visuals from 9-11. And I think Zack Snyder did that intentionally. And I'm not sure what bugs me more, that he's exploiting a real tragedy that has permanently changed culture in this country. We're still traumatized from 9-11. Just look at the 
political primaries going on right now, the presidential primaries. Yeah. By the way, man, really quickly, your yeah. your comment, I think before we were on air, about it being Avatar mixed with the Matrix is totally on point. I mean, yeah. because they're the Matrix pods, but they're organically distributed on like vines or whatever. This looks right. awesome to me. Ugh. I, you why know, does why is this thing's defense mechanism these weird tentacle things? Shouldn't it have like guns or something? Yeah. Like what is this thing? Why is it able to do this? It this it moves almost the exact same way as the uh it's like the Sentinels mixed with the Deus Ex Machina in the Matrix uh sequels. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The the um the collection of drones right at the end that form the face. Right. Um but again, this is supposed to be a machine used to terraform uninhabited worlds. Why does it have this really weird defense mechanism? Um, but to get back to the point that's much larger and that I think is much more concerning, I don't like that he's exploiting a real tragedy where a lot of people died. And I really don't like that he's doing it in a movie that's supposed to be an escapist fantasy about comic book characters that are written for children. And I really don't like the implication that Superman is a terrorist. To me, that's not original that's really, really, really betraying a core concept well, of this to, character. To, to be, on, I mean, to you know, be fair. In Ultron, you know, Iron Man and Hulk destroyed like half of Johannesburg. Well, no, Hulk destroys half of Johannesburg while he's brainwashed, and Iron Man does the best he can to put Hulk down as fast as possible. Talk about a nine eleven image when he sh- shoots the Hulk down that building at the end. Sure, I mean that. And looks I can just deal like with it. one image. This is, we are still, uh, we still have a half an hour of this movie. We are going to get another half an hour of recurrent 9-11 recalling images. It's well, luckily just, it's not that bad because there's a little bit at the end and then there's like 10 minutes of credits. But yeah, it's amazing that okay. this thing is still going. And here's Lawrence Fishburne. You have no idea why he's important in this movie. Great actor. Right. They re- That's the thing. They rely on small bits by great actors to, to make the movie work, even though there's no real logic to it. And we, also, right. we don't get a full display of emotion, I think, ever from Henry Cavill, which I'm not saying he's not capable of. Um, he's just so stoic. I mean, he's determined and he's Except pissed. for the two times he screams. Right. And he, neither time the scream has any, it doesn't go. carry any weight. Okay, he screams three times. There, when Jonathan dies and when he snaps Zod's neck at the end of the film. Uh, you know, just about Superman's flying, um, I think my favorite flying at this point, just because it's so different, is the vision uh, from Age of Ultron. Yeah. The scene where he's flying through the planet blowing up and avoiding everything and you're like we're seeing it from the back like almost like a like first person to to save the scarlet witch who's trapped in the train station or whatever and through all the debris is absolutely spectacular and there's something very alien about the way he just hovers right right with with humanoid characters even when they're in place like 20 feet off the ground they're like shaking a little bit the right. vision they just keep completely still but there's yeah. just enough movement you know he's still there. Um, it's a mix of alien and human and superhero. I love it. I don't know how who is going to be able to defend against the Vision in Civil War, but we will see. I'm excited for that. We have a lot of flying characters in Civil War. You know, yeah. even the Scarlet Witch we know is going to be able to fly. So it, it, right. Marvel hasn't had to deal with that yet. Um, except that my, scene where know. Superman reaches for the sun right yes. there. I actually wonder if that's not also from Dark Knight Returns. There's a scene where uh, Clark in that has to deflect a giant nuke and he gets it into the upper atmosphere, but it creates an EMP wave that creates a um, like a dust cloud that shorts out all the power and blocks out 
sunlight. And so he's basically reduced to a skeleton as he falls back to earth. And so he's climbing out of this pit and he's able to drain the photosynthetic energy from basically a, a jungle um, or like a big, long savanna full of flowers. And he, redu- he kills it all, but he's able to rebuild his body. But there's a scene where he's kind of reaching out. And I wonder if Snyder took that visual from that. Also, this plane is called the Guardian. Guardian is a fairly obscure DC Comics character based out of Metropolis. I don't know if that's an Easter egg or not, but uh, mm. I, that did occur to me when I saw it. Mm. So, um, uh-oh. We've got a B-52 coming in. Yep. Oh, there, there we, we go. go. Oh, baby. and when Superman flies up the middle and takes that thing out, that's in Independence Day. That's when Randy Quaid was, flies his plane up the middle of the beam what? of the ship and takes it out. It's so funny you said that because I saw the preview again for Independence Day, but after I'd seen this and I was like, oh, man, someone's copying someone here. The color palette's like exactly the same. Here we yeah. go. Laser... I forgot that he had the, uh, this is how little I know. I forgot that he was like Cyclops. I thought it was just x-ray vision. I forgot that it was laser no, heat vision. Heat vision too. Yeah, yeah, heat vision. Any Superman powers he doesn't use here? Does he ever use his freeze breath? I don't remember him using that. I don't that. think so. I don't think um, there's freeze breath. Everything else I think they use. Is that like when, uh, when Bobby kisses Rogue in X2 and uses the ice to uh, make sure he doesn't die? And then, mm. do, do you remember that? I, I know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, no, this I is more that. he blows really hard, and he can freeze things, or he can put Hey-o. out fires. Ha-ha, yeah. <laughs> um. Uh-oh, here we go. This is great watching this with you, man. I'm really enjoying the special effects. Yeah. Um, I'll, enjoy it. I'll enjoy it for the both of us. Oh, that's why it worked. I, I watched that scene yesterday, and I was like, why didn't this thing work? And it, I thought there was some huge thing they had to make. No, it turns out they just had to churn the plate five degrees and it went back in correctly amy adams um, is just killing it in this movie i mean yeah. she is doing everything possible um so, shouldn't the kryptonians be dispatching the humans way more easily than has been the case so far this is one of those i'm a bad guy so i can go slowly because i don't think i can be beaten um but yes if she if she had just torn through this ship instead of uh, you know, walking up to them. Another uh, another Avengers comparison with that exact train of thought that you just had was, yeah. you know, when they when they uh, um, uh, the, the helicarrier is uh, you know almost taken down and right. they don't see it coming, and Jeremy Renner, the Hawkeye, with one arrow blows up an entire rotor. Appar- right. Apparently, only has one arrow that does that, and then he gets inside and hacks the computer, and they shut off one more rotor. You know, it's like they couldn't shut off all four rotors. I'm like, oh, I guess he's just enjoying the slow burn of their deaths. It's the only explanation I can come up with. That's a good point because really, the way Hawkeye's arrows work is the arrow shaft is the same all the time. He just rotates the head he wants right. on it, and you would think he would carry more than one explosive arrow. Yep, he's clearly able to to shoot a rotor from the air. I mean, the, uh, the implication of that was that he had to hit, like, within, like, an inch of a specific part of the rotor, you know? Right, but you he clearly to... can do that, I mean... Right, but but then the ship's moving, and then they're all... I mean, I, you know, that part I can understand, that just, but then they hack the computers and they shut one more down, you know? They still have two rotors, so they stay up long enough for Iron Man to... Uh, whatever, do his thing. Here we go. This is it. Another Lois saving. And that's the thing. He has two big Lois saves, but because of how active Amy Adams is, it never feels, you know, uh, excessively 1930s or whatever. You know what right. I mean? Right. Superman is always saving Lois. I mean, he saves her once a month. Do you, uh, uh, are you a Seinfeld guy? Uh, no. 
Really? Nope, never watched it. A I've Jewish seen the boy Nazi. from the northeast yeah, on the west side. Yeah. So there's a whole Superman episode called The Race, um, right. where there's a legend that Jerry is is the fastest man from high school, and someone believes that he was cheating an old friend. I've that seen he that episode, into. and he has a girlfriend named Lois, and he just he doesn't he doesn't even like her that much, other than her name is Lois, and she kind of looks like the black haired Lois Lane, and he is always saying her name at the end of every sentence. Where do you want to get food, Lois? How's Chinese, Lois? <laughs> you know, watch I, me. Watch I me do remember Lois. a Seinfeld episode where Elaine starts dating a poor person, and she's like, maybe he's a superhero. And Seinfeld says something like, yeah, his weaknesses are kryptonite and creditors. And she goes, yeah, just call me Lois Lone. I want to say about this scene, Amy Adams and Henry Cavill are good together, but these two characters have no reason to fall in love. What is it they, I mean, other than, I guess, sexual attraction. It's sold totally through performance, which I'm cool with. I guess, but why? I think it's not as realistic as the Jane Foster Thor in the sense of, you know, Jane Foster, uh, was openly in lust with Thor and vice versa. Right. You know, they made it a tale of two people who did like each other and wanted to fuck and maybe they'd end up together, but right. they didn't even try and sell a love story. And that's why I, I say that for me, that's the best girlfriend uh, performance um, in any, at least Marvel movie. As much as I love Pepper Potts. I was going to say, I, I like Pepper more one. Cause I think she's a better developed character. Cause she grows over, the three films well, no, she's no, no, been no. in. Well, that's I agree with you. But I said in a single film, first film, single film performance as the girlfriend. I think, right. you know, and they screwed up her in in, in the second Thor movie. Um, now, depending on how the third one goes, maybe she can get to Gwyneth Paltrow status. But as a single performance, where she's in only half the movie, basically, um, I, that that's my favorite of the, <laughs> the love stories because it's it's a less story. Okay, here's the final confrontation. Right, you know. I mean, I, I'm amazed that, yeah. It's... Meanwhile, look at Metropolis. Look what these people did to this place. I mean, this is, I don't know. I, I don't like wanton destruction like this. I'm, maybe I'm alone in that. I find it harder and harder to just take at face value that just shit's got to get this badly fucked up. This is what would happen if gods were fighting in New York. I mean, it's just, you know, it wouldn't yeah. be realistic otherwise. Yeah, but Superman, and I've said this on other podcasts, Superman would have found a way to take this fight somewhere that wouldn't have done this much damage. So, he always does in the comics. He always right. does. So is that one of the things you didn't like about Dark Knight Rises was the way they like blew up the whole city? Um, huh, I haven't thought about that. Because uh, I love it. Because that's the first one where they blow it up from below. You know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the football stadium scene. It's great. Uh, I didn't mind the damage in, in Dark Knight Rises as much as I minded in this, in part because Superman, it's the Batman. difference between Superman yeah. and Batman. Oh, look at that flying. This looks great. This looks yeah. great. And this is why I think Batman v Superman is going to make a lot of money. It's going If they can improve on the... Uh, Another 9-11 scene. Sorry, yeah. keep going. Well, I know, but did you see Fight Club? I mean, that was from yeah. 99, and that looks like 9-11. At the, that, was, that was 9-11 before 9-11. I mean, the last scene of Fight Club is just tons of buildings imploding. Right, but I think Fight Club is in part supposed to be satire, and you are yes. certainly not supposed to think Mike's either court. of these people are heroes. They're the protagonists, that was but a really they're tough psychotic, there, crazy people, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it's little things. Like, you see back there when, when Superman jumped over the LexCorp oil trucks yeah. or whatever? So right. that went from being practical, like actual Henry Cavill, to CGI. Like, this too. This is going yeah. practical to CGI to practical in a single shot. It's so hard to do. Yeah. Um, 
I, I think it works for the most part. I think it works great. I, I do. I do. I, I mean, I, yeah, I, I think part of the reason I'm rooting for the Batman v Superman universe is that I need a dark contrast to Marvel. You know, it's like my top three or four Marvel movies, like the two Avengers movies, Guardians and Cap 2 are above even the Dark Knight for me. But in my top 10, I, you know, or t- let's put it this way. I have the Dark Knight uh, um, movies all in my top 10 or 12, even though they're not in my top four or five. Does that make sense? And, and like, uh, this is yeah, not, I mean, this I is think... not, but I, I, I do, I would like a slightly darker. Now, I do think X-Men Apocalypse actually is going to fill that hole in my life quite nicely. Um, yeah, the X movies have always been darker than the straight MCU movies. And you also, you do have, I mean, maybe this is the difference between you and me a little bit, is I also watch the the comic television, and you've seen a lot of it, but not all of no, it. No, I haven't seen a lot so of it. So DC has its lighter side in TV. Marvel has its darker side in TV. Right. I mean, we're, Daredevil and Jessica Jones are fucking dark, right, and so, it's awesome. It's so perfect. We're, we're going to end on TV. Um, okay. If that's cool, we'll wrap on yeah, TV. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so for now, as we watch yet another fight between these two, that looks mostly really good. Okay, this is all Smith. It's, just, it's taking so long. This it's is so all many Smith. fights. Oh, dude. Uh, oh, do you know what thought I had watching this movie? But, uh, it, it was an independent thought, but also you came to mind while watching right. this scene in particular, but all the destruction was like, I went to myself, wow, the Matrix Revolutions was really restrained. <laughs> Yeah, this you is know. a little more like Iron Man, like some of his flight combat scenes in the Avengers, especially yeah. you know, where he's flying through buildings. Um, but Jesus, I mean... Well, here's just... the thing about X-Men, too. Actually, X-Men is darker than these movies. These movies oh. have a darker tone, but since X-Men is dealing with actual issues of, of genocide and hatred and so racism forth and, and racism, like that, yeah. it, it's actually, I mean, you know, the the dystopic opening scene of X-Men Days of Future Past is so horrifying because the X-Men universe is the most real, right? Of any of the Marvel universes, most relatable, you know? And the fact that there would be, you know, worldwide concentration camps for the majority of the population, you know, I hope it doesn't happen. I don't think it will, but it wouldn't totally surprise me at some point in the future. And it's also, I don't know, did you ever read at the time or since the sort of uh, late 80s, early to mid 90s X-Men comics? Back when it was uh, Lee and Chris Claremont and like the all the all stars before they left and started their own company. Um, is this like the Phoenix Saga era? I also want to point out real quickly, yeah. returning to this movie, that satellite they just destroyed that has a W on it. That's supposed to be a Wayne Corporation satellite. Yep. So that's your first hint, you know, that other DC, you know, one of the questions I have about this film is if is is if it has any purpose other than to set up the extended universe. That's your first clue that other heroes exist in this universe because we have Wayne Corporation. Okay, here it comes. Yeah, and you now have come you have to way my more of a problem. Least favorite scene in this film. Uh, give it just a second. Yeah, you have way more of a problem with this than me. Yeah, I stop. Never. Blah. What's blah, he supposed we, to do? What What is Superman supposed to do here? Knock him unconscious. It's possible he's beating him. He's and now the scene that made me actually shout out loud at a theater. I went, no, I've never shouted at a theater before or since. That's the one scene that made okay. me do All it. Right. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Let, let me jump in here. Knock him unconscious and then what? This guy's Put him in to... the Phantom Zone. They know how to do it. But, but, <laughs> imprisoning someone 
them being it's in the better phantom, than killing them. Hold on, them being in the phantom zones, the whole reason why they're here in the first place. If they had just kept them on the planet, they would have died with everybody else. So they go to the phantom zone and then they escape. And then what's about pack in the phantom zone? It didn't work the first time. Why would it work now? I mean, to live there for eternity in a cell, you know. I mean, it doesn't I, matter. I'd rather I, be killed, honestly. If I was a bad guy, I it, might rather be killed. I'm not talking about what would be more fitting for Zod. Superman has to be better than Zod, and if he is killing people in cold blood, if he is snapping their necks, he's no better. That's than not what Zod. cold blood is. Cold blood is murder. I I think that's murder. I think he has Zod. That guy just killed like tens of thousands of people at least. Yeah, and Clark clearly doesn't care about that. I, I never got that from this movie. I think Clark was just dealing with a th- Independence Day level threat. You know, I, I just I, I I don't know. Here's another scene of Clark being an asshole of just destroying a trillion dollar satellite because he feels like it. Um, look, there is a comic from the 1980s. I think it was 88 or 89 where yes, Clark does have to kill an alternate version of Zod and his soldiers in a parallel earth. Um, and it, and he really struggles with it. He actually manifests a violent alternate ego because of it. Um, I'd like to think Zack Snyder decided, okay, that's the version of this story we're going to tell. Fine. I, I just think there are some things you have to be faithful to when you're adapting anything. There are core concepts. And if you don't get those right, you should just call it space alien superhero movie. Superman doesn't kill. I I just that hurts on a very personal level my understanding of what Superman is, why he has stayed essentially the same person for ninety years, uh, not ninety, uh, eighty five years, um, because that is one of his core concepts: is he doesn't kill. You know, he's killed a couple of times. Yes, he has to kill Doomsday in a comic that's not hasn't really held up all that well to scrutiny okay. you know, afterwards. Can- can I ask you a self-reflective and possibly impossible to answer question? Sure. <laughs> On a scale of one to ten. Also, I like when she says, "I think yeah. he's hot." I mean, the, these movies need a little <sighs> bit more humor, and that line is not great, but at least it's an attempt. No, but that's what's great about the first Thor movie is they're constantly joking about how hot Hemsworth is, Kat Dennings. Right. Oh, he's cut. You know, he's pretty hot for a homeless guy. I mean, yeah. You know, that's the thing. That's what's great about Marvel is their movies are flawed, but they know how to make fun of themselves. And this movie yeah. takes itself way too seriously. Yes. However, well, I would well, give symbolism. this... Symbolism. Yeah. What's your impossible question? Let's get to it, because this movie's almost over. My impossible question is, can you separate your love for Superman from this movie? Or let me, it's, if you could separate it, like, from 1 to 10, um, 10 being the most and 1 the least, what would the rating be of, like... If you had to self-analyze, like how biased you are towards this particular film because of Superman, is it a ten or is it somewhere in between? No, it's a pretty high bias, but it's not just because I like the character. It is because I know a lot about the character because I, you know, read a lot of his comics because I've researched him because you know I wrote a senior thesis in college that talks about Jewish ideas of heroism and what we take from superheroes that were all written by Jews. Well, not all of them, but pretty much all the great ones were conceived by Jews. So what does it say about what Jews think is a heroic character or not? So yes, I am extremely biased. I don't think this movie is very good on a purely objective cinematic scale. But here's the thing. You don't make a movie that adapts something like this 
if you're not trying to appeal to people who have a pre-existing familiarity with it. That's what the nostalgia drive in modern movie making is, is we want people who read these comics as kids to think, oh, I love that when I was a kid. I'm going to go see this movie. And I have a problem with then shitting on that by betraying the character, one of the most fundamental core concepts of the character in your first movie. Okay, can I push can I push on this? Yeah. I'm going to push on this. Okay, first of all. Also, if Clark Kent uh, is a stringer as he is in this film, why is he being walked around? Stringers don't get desks. They live at home and freelance. Keep going. Sorry. It's possible Lois vouched for him behind the Maybe. scenes. Who knows? Uh, this is great. She knows the identity, which is awesome, yeah. just like Rachel Dawes knew. Right. Um, and uh, they do a nice job with his hair and even the way he smiles to to make him look slightly different. It's right. absurd. As I mentioned, you know, in Batman, it makes sense to me um, why... Uh, by the way, I, I, I thought the music was decent in this. Um, it sure. Ma- it's it, fine. Uh, it makes sense to me why Batman and Daredevil and Spider-Man as street-level guys need to keep their identity hidden. But someone like Superman, the, the, the closest connection I can make is um, Donald Blake, you know, who's Thor's alter ego on Earth. And like right. he can like come to Earth and be human through Donald Blake. It's so stupid. It's just there was their attempt to try and humanize Thor. I mean, you can see it in the movies. As much as he loves the other Avengers, he can't relate to them. Right, and he's never going to be able to. And uh, you know, he'll ride into. He'll be one of those riding into the sunset characters. But um, but with Superman, it doesn't really make sense unless he's trying to have the human experience. And so I ask you, is his I mean, it'd be one thing to hide his identity and just live on a farm, but he wants to be engaged in society. Where does that come from? And then we can bridge from this to talk about TV shows in terms of uh, of the humanizing um, sides of these comic book universes. But if you wouldn't mind answering that one that one question about, you know, wh- why is Clark Kent wanting to be out in the world right now? Well, some of it is because he feels like he can uh, he can be aware of crimes going on more easily even though we can hear everything going on in the world if he tries. But, uh, you know, he can find out what's going on in the world as a reporter. Um, you got to remember that concept came out in the 30s and 40s when newspapers were really independent. Now there are a lot of questions about how independent and how actually news gathering, you know, major media outlets really are anymore. You can debate that for, you know, hours, and I don't really want to. Um, but, you know, in the Harry Lennox, by the way, that's who the the general was. Henry Lennox. Um, he, he was in um, a movie version of, I believe, Othello. Could be. He was also in Dollhouse. Um, he was good in that too. Uh, so some of it is because he thinks it's a good job to serve his purpose, to finding crimes, to find ways to help people. Uh, some of it is because he believes he can help people as a reporter in ways that Superman can't. In the comics. A lot of the stories he does are stories about, you know, disenfranchised people, homeless people, you know, victims of society, for lack of a better word, or marginalized peoples. Uh, and he's pretty good at that. You know, he gets some acclaim as a reporter for talking, telling stories that other people won't tell that kind of get overlooked. So it's an extension of the same goal. And some of it is because he was raised by humans. And in the comics, that human side of him is as important here. Clark Kent is, 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 you know, very much a facade to facilitate being Superman. 
Um, they talk about that in Kill Bill a lot, um, you know, in the famous monologue right at the end before the last fight. Um, I don't know. I fell asleep halfway through the first one and never went sure. back to that. Also, if you're looking at the credits, I didn't yes. realize the ASO Club's bartender is a character. Uh, mm. Bibbo Babowski actually runs the Ace of Clubs bar in the comics. So I didn't realize that was a thing, but that's a nice little Easter egg too. I like that. Okay. Um, so, so can I, can I jump in? Yeah. So I want to do just a quick wrap up on Man of Steel and then we're going to finish talking about, uh, the positive side of the DC universe, which is on television, yep. which Matt knows a lot about in which I am extremely close to finally get, I've, <laughs> Ar- Ar- Arrow has been on the top of my watch list for like a year. I shit you not. I don't know why I can't, you know, get into it. I love fucking Hawkeye. I should be able to love Arrow. Yeah. Um, so just real quick. So here are the numbers. As I mentioned earlier, it made two ninety one million domestic, three thirty uh I'm sorry, three seventy seven foreign for a total of six sixty eight. It had a hundred and sixteen million dollar opening weekend, which is very good, and hitting almost three hundred domestic is excellent. The two thirds split or the lack thereof can be attributed to one or both of these two things. You can let me know that the foreign being only, you know, sixty percent more or something rather than twice. Mm-hmm. A, it did better domestically than it should have because of people, American identification with Superman. B, um, Superman's just not as popular of a character overseas like Batman or C, both. Uh, it could be both of those. It could also have something to do with whatever it was opening up against. I don't remember what was coming out that month internationally that didn't come out in the U.S., that did come out in the U.S. and had to compete internationally with Man of Steel. Can I give you one? Yeah. So uh, Man of Steel was released June 14, 2013. Okay. okay. Two months before – I'm sorry, one month before, May third, 2013, Iron Man 3 came out. Okay. Okay. Iron Man Which 3 did pretty well. Yeah. Iron Man 3 made 409 million domestic and 806 foreign for a total of over 1.2 billion. By yeah. far the highest grossing uh solo movie ever. I don't know if you want to say by far Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises both hit around a billion. Iron right. Man 3 hit 1.2 billion. The difference was in 2008 when uh, Dark Knight came out, it made a billion where 60% of that was domestic. You never see that anymore. If the Dark Knight, the original Dark Knight, came out now to the same reviews or whatever and was seen as just as relevant and good, it would have made 1.5, which made the Dark Knight Rises in 2012 only getting a billion, uh, quote-unquote only a billion, um, when the Avengers made 1.5 that year out of nowhere. Um, very confounding. Um, Dark Knight Rises actually lost, uh, or not lost, but went down significantly domestically, and then they increased foreign, because as we talked about, foreign distribution's getting better. But yeah, Iron Man 3 kicks the shit out of uh, Man of Steel money-wise. It's twice as much on less on a smaller production budget. Um, so go ahead. Right, but you have to remember also that uh, <clears throat> the marketing machine that is the Marvel Cinematic Universe can't be understated. Every one of those movies is marketing for the next movie. Man of Steel debuted out of whole cloth. It's the first move in creating the universe. By the time Iron Man 3 came out, there was, what, six or seven Marvel Cinematic movies that had already come out, including uh, The Avengers. Um, so it was oh, yeah. always going to probably track better at the box office simply because that universe was so much better formed and constantly generating its own hype. Oh, yeah. Um, um, you know, you also had... I, wait, wait, can I, can I just jump in ahead, on that yeah. point real quick? Yeah, I mean, you had um, Iron Man 3 uh, went up um, 
and really doubled actually Iron Man two's total. Right. From, Iron Man three is also better than it was Iron better. Man 2. Well, let me just set up. Let me just set up the argument here. So you know, Iron Man three doubled. Uh, Thor: The Dark World went up a few hundred million. Cap took a huge jump to seven fifty. Um, and, and then you had Guardians come out of nowhere and make 750. It was all because of the Avengers bump, but Iron Man 3 especially benefited A, because he's Iron Man, B, it was the first movie after the Avengers, it was just one year later, and C, the whole point of Iron Man 3 was that he was having PTSD from the Battle of New York, and so, they, you know, as I mentioned, Joss Whedon's constantly being asked to set up future movies, and he totally had to set up Tony's mindset um, that, you know, he was actually traumatized, as anyone would be in that situation. Sure. Um, in fact, he doesn't even get through the trauma, and he creates Ultron, and, uh, and, this this is what it comes down to is the DZ cinematic universe. We've talked about it a bunch. I want to talk about TV shows. Um, so I think maybe we'll we'll table Batman v Superman until it gets closer. But uh, cool, man. Well, thanks again. I'm definitely going to check out these shows finally. Uh, you know, perhaps we'll do a we'll do a quick um, one before a Batman v Superman comes out, depending on when I release that, just to talk a little bit more about the origin stories and the and, and the mythological stuff. We don't have to do a really long one, but I, we've been teasing it. You wrote a whole giant paper about this. That would be cool. But definitely, we'll see you after the movie <laughs> for our uh, you know our, our wrap up and impressions of Batman v Superman. Um, so make sure to get your tickets for opening weekend when it happens, man. Uh, and, uh, yeah. Any, any last, uh, words, um, Mr. Co-contributor, excellent job with the promotion. Nice work. My pleasure. Uh, and I think I've said everything I got to say. All right, people. Thanks for listening. And we are out. All right. Thanks, buddy. My pleasure. <laughs>